Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, your taxi, RV, camper, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Welcome to Coast to Coast AM, and we're coming to you live from Toronto, Canada, and Coast's Toronto Affiliate Talk Radio AM 640. My name's Richard Serrett. Thanks for your fine company. Last we spoke, in mid-March, I was in Las Vegas. It was the end of a two-week trek for me across the Pacific Northwest, down the coast of California to L.A., and then finally on to Las Vegas. And it was in the great Pacific Northwest, Washington and uh, Oregon, where I met both of tonight's guests. Uh, Both are multidisciplinarians. You might call them polymaths. Aaron Murakami joins us in the second half of the program, and he's been working in advanced energy technology for some time. He's developed what some are describing as the world's most efficient plasma ignition system. Now, don't worry, we're not going to get too bogged down in arcane science and complex formulas, uh, but rest assured, we're not going to dumb it down either. Uh, But what I discovered is that Spokane, Washington, turns out to be a hotbed of inventors, innovators, uh, people like Aaron, who are challenging the orthodox scientific community and their unbending views on things like Lenz's Law and the laws of thermodynamics. And I met several people in Spokane who are working on what the skeptics would dismiss as so-called free energy devices or perpetual motion devices. But Aaron Murakami is here to put that idea to bed once and for all. He maintains there's nothing woo-woo at all about his plasma ignition system, for example. Paul Babcock, who I also met in Spokane, he has a motor that runs on energy produced by magnets. It's not about suspending the laws of physics. It's about expanding our notion of what those laws really mean. Now, when we're talking about Aaron Murakami's uh, plasma ignition system, what's the windfall? How about huge energy savings? How about energy security? How about a much cleaner environment? So why is it so difficult to get these devices to market? Well, I'll leave that as a rhetorical question for the time being. The other gentleman I met face-to-face, this time in Grants Pass, Oregon, uh, was Dr. Richard Allen Miller. Now, we've spoken on this program before, but we met for the first time, and it was quite a meeting, I must say. Uh, Dr. Miller has quite a past, beginning with some pretty remarkable high school science experiments in the early 1960s, then on to uh, top security clearance at Boeing, and a stint in the forerunner of the Navy SEALs, when it was known simply as the SEAL Corporation, where he was given the task of investigating various paranormal phenomena. He was a real-life Fox Mulder, if you will. In fact, he has another connection to the Hollywood X-Files we may get into as well. Uh, But tonight, we're going to focus on Dr. Miller's work on training super soldiers at the SEAL Corporation, beginning about 45 years ago. A super soldier is a concept soldier, often fictional, capable of operating beyond normal human limits or abilities. 
Super soldiers are common in military science fiction literature, films, and video games. In 2012, DARPA was reported to be developing an externally powered XOS exoskeleton designed for greatly increased strength and endurance. Fictional super soldiers are usually heavily augmented, either through eugenics, genetic engineering, cybernetic implants, drugs, brainwashing, traumatic events, an extreme training regimen or other scientific and pseudoscientific means. Occasionally, some instances also use paranormal methods such as black magic or technology and science of extraterrestrial origin. In entertainment, the creators of such, of such programs are viewed often as mad scientists or stern military personnel, depending on the emphasis, as their programs would typically go past ethical boundaries in the pursuit of science or military might. We'll separate fact from fiction when we talk super soldiers with physicist Dr. Richard Allen Miller in just a few moments. You're listening to Coast to Coast AM. Why don't you stay a while? Author, researcher Dr. Richard Allen Miller reveals a depth of knowledge and experience in alternative agriculture, physics, and metaphysics. He began working in the secret world of Navy Intel, SIL Corporation, and then MRU in the late 1960s, and now has amazing experiences and conclusions to share. His writings reveal a depth of knowledge and experience in three major fields, alternative agriculture, physics, and metaphysics. Before many leading-edge concepts became trendy topics, Miller was and is in the international front lines of research, experimentation, and documentation. Today, Dr. Miller writes for Nexus Magazine and is a, a frequent guest on a radio programs like this. In the 21st century, Miller is re-emerging as a critical time, at a critical time in human evolution where metaphysics and practical survival Converge. Great pleasure to welcome Dr. Richard Allen Miller back to Coast to Coast AM. How are you, Rick? I'm good, and sure nice to hear from you again. I had to had the laugh on the the earlier intro about mad scientists. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean that's okay. that is sort of the yeah sort of the the the, um, the Hollywood portrayal the Hollywood yeah, portrayal. No, while I'm doing all of this, you know, in the early 70s, 70, 1970, 'm of the of the seal corporation if we could uh, uh Rick uh, yeah. because th- this is interesting uh because before there were the navy seals we're all familiar with the navy seals before that it was just called the seal corporation now well, yeah, who started it didn't exist they no, had who started it and they had astronauts and they had spooks that worked in the military in various stages you know recon and in Vietnam, I came out of, I graduated in 62 in high school. And so all of my graduate students, we uh, either went to graduate school, you know, college, or we got to enjoy Vietnam as advisors before we were at war with them. We got to go down into tunnels. So I stayed in school as long as I could, making weapons. <laughs> I'd rather not go over there. And at that time... There was a body count starting to happen, 
and half my graduating class did not come home from Vietnam. And that that's was 62, sad truth. class of 62. Yeah. So that's where I started into my, you know, virginity of waking up. Um, it isn't until this last 20 years that I started to realize more clearly what I had actually been doing in that time frame, because it wasn't like it is today. Today, everybody's interested in aliens and uh, artifacts and uh, advanced technology. But back then, we knew about aliens, but we were more worried about what the Russians were doing. You know, psychic discoveries behind the Iron Curtain, Ostrander and Schroeder, that's accurate. And we were concerned because Czechoslovakia was developing technologies that were incredible. I mean, their sciences were way beyond ours. Uh, Russia was still more superstitious, but they were not the deep scholars you'd find from Prague. And when I, when I'm, and I'm saying that right up front. Europe has, it's always been about Prague and Beirut until they bombed Beirut down into powder. But it was Prague was a premier for sciences and they had sciences going on there in astrology that we don't even know about yet, but we talk about them as biorhythms and the relationship of the storm on Jupiter to a psychological event in terms of when you menstruate, that kind of thing. It's called, uh, what was it called? It was cosmobiology. And uh, they were into other systems that uh, uh, the military, absolutely. Okay, so super soldier. So the first project was a man named Jack Schwartz. Schwartz um, was out of Portland and was an individual from, I think, Netherlands that could stick a needle through his arm and stop the bleeding at will. And if you don't think the military didn't want to know how that worked, they wanted to, how, how can you do that? So you witnessed that. You, you witnessed this Cooper. Schwartz, you witnessed this Schwartz character shoving needles through his arm and... Needles, not little needles. Your Iceman, for example, the paranormal we studied on that was Sherpas that could walk up Mount Rainier barefoot. The military wanted to know how that works. And, uh... Yeah, I can see why. Sure. Sure. Okay, well, moving page forward. So we had just developed an incredible single-gain amplifier on Bainbridge Island, uh, Jan Hoover and J&J Enterprises, making the first biofeedback devices. Later, they set them up on the fourth floor in anesthesiology uh, at the University of Washington, and then that laboratory was duplicated over in the Manager Foundation in Topeka, Kansas, which is where the studies actually took place. I worked with a guy named Elmer Green and uh, and found that Schwartz had it was able to go into certain specific altered states of consciousness that allowed him to do things with his parasympathetic nervous system. At that time, Andrea Puharch was working at Stanford Research Institute and had written the book Beyond Telepathy and how to reprogram parasympathetic nervous system processes. And now we had a device that could do heart rate, pulse, respiration, brain waves, and we could start to train our troops to be able to control specific autonomic functions like allergies and your response to histamines. 
And it's, you know, it'd be kind of awkward to go down, sneaking down into Iraq and then sneeze because of the pollen. Absolutely. Let, let me just say, let me, well, I'm using that as a metaphor. Understood. Let me just back you up here for a second, because uh, before we get into the training of super soldiers, I just want to revisit way, a little bit. Some was of was not used to back then. That is a no brand doubt. new term. Back then, it was enhancements and... Um, you know, they didn't even call it super soldiers at that time because I was training other people besides divers. Thank All right, you. but I want to I want to go back and revisit some of the paranormal investigations uh, at at Seal Corporation before we get into, uh, you know, t- training uh, super sure. soldiers and enhancement and so forth. Because um, you you were sort of charged with this assignment of investigating. I mentioned you were sort of like the, the the real Fox Mulder, and and you were supposed to investigate uh, the various, you know, the, the variables surrounding things like ESP and telekinesis, right. and, and try to separate the wheat from the chaff. Let's let's talk about, for okay, example, here we go. So yeah. I'm pulled up right now, report number ten that was done. I'm gonna I'm gonna read a little bit of it to you. There are 12 basic reports over a three-year period that we did in terms of uh, called the SEAL reports. That will be a book that I will publish that will give you a snapshot of exactly what we did in each. So there will be 12 chapters um, with detail. You know, there was paranormal things going on everywhere, and they wanted all of it, not just super soldier things. For example, there are shamans up in Mount Vernon, Washington, that could walk on fire, kind of like down and out in Beverly Hills, only the real deal. And how do they do that? And so I was charged with setting up what we call brainstorming. This is a think tank. It was called Oak. I have now kept that as Oak Publishing, but back then it was the Organization for the Advancement of Knowledge, and it was under MRU, and it was a think tank for Boeing, Battelle, and Douglas United Nuclear, some other, Stanford Research, uh, China Lake was in it, uh, and Argonne there was uh, at uh, Livermore. There were others, but we had a group of probably about 30, individuals that would sit around once a month and brainstorm and we had the brainstorming led to indexing and uh, that was we had an ESP project and we had a psychotronic project and then we had projects under devices and then production that would be papers and uh, bioengineering things that you know uh, psychotronics and plants that was Baxter and Cleve Baxter was talking about the secret life of plants back then and they wanted to know is that really true or not as a kevit it turns out that's not true because what his problem was was grain migration where he needed to take the GSR, galvanic skin response electrodes, and switching them every 30 seconds so you didn't have a grain migration of a charge on one side to the other causing cell salts in, in the plant to drift, which is how it works. And so that was something we knew right out of the gate. You know, my first paper was on Corellian photography as a secondary emission of electrons. And that led to uh, a another chapter in Spook Central, another book. I Okay, hang on. Let me let me stop you there because you mentioned Corellian photography. You're talking about auras now, right? Yes. Um, when you put an electrostatic field around somebody, 
um, you ionize the gases. And there are, just in the Hindu systems, 32 different naughty points, NADI points on the body that are releasing uh, pheromone and or uh, other sensory motor information about what's going on internally in the body. So, what, so you, what your conclusion was that auras are not real or they are real? Yes, all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for clarifying. Well, you're welcome. No, um, when you look at somebody, if you do it right, you can see backgrounds behind the person as aftertones in the way the rods and cones work in your, in your eye. Now, those are what people call aura. Is it real? Well, yes. Is it real information? No. You have gleaned information about someone's internal state, and then you communicate it optically to your brain by hallucinating a color associated with, oh, he's angry, that kind of thing. Now, the information is already there, and the way it's brought in, clairvoyance, clairaudience, clairsention, is in one of the five senses as a hallucination in a metaphor or resolution of information. And the way you're going from this system of information that you can't actually get because it's a part of your subconscious into another part of your consciousness, which is ego. And so you, it's a dialogue thing that you hallucinate. So are auras real? Yes and no. They're there, but they're not real. What's real is the information, and the way you convert it into consciousness is a hallucination. All right, I hope everyone's getting this. There will be a test later. (laughs) Okay, and and quickly, we mentioned you mentioned Clive Baxter and the Secret Life of Plants and hooking up plants to this, you know, the lie detector, the galvanic skin response. Play the music, play Mozart. I'll tell you about Mozart, though. That does work, and so there's something with sound and movement that is technology we don't have, probably as previous technologies, uh, where dance like Gabriel Roth or Kate Bush or even um, Kenneth Anger uh, can change space-time like Ghost Dance or Whirling Dervish just with movement, Tai Chi. There is something else going on there that we do not yet understand in our conscious mind. Well, you mentioned when you were when you were at the at Seal Corporation, Rick. You mentioned when sorry when you you mentioned when you were at Seal Corporation. A lot of the time, you were as you as you pointed to me catching flies. In other words, your jaw was a gape. <laughs> yeah, not real. Um, okay, oh, yeah. mostly. Yeah, I would see things that I today, forty five years later, still don't know quite what it means. Well, one of the things, one of the cases you mentioned, a real strange one, had to do with with ketamine, which is is well, explain what ketamine is, and then explain well, this in, this transmitter. Uh, you know, it's a it's a part of the brain. It's the highest one, by the way, according to Leary's neurologic circuits. A ketamine is the one that connects one universe to another universe. It's the jump potential or CNV, if you will, contingent negative variation between going from one subset of information to a second subset. I've never said that before. That is a direct quote from the non-local mind in a holographic universe book I'm currently getting ready to release. That book tells you how to change the movie. You say, Back in the early 70s, when I was working SEAL, I published a paper called A Holographic Concept of Reality. I did it in Prague 
and it was part of Dr. Stanley Krippner's psychoenergetic systems that uh, with Jack um, Sarfati, others, they were real famous scientists like myself back then, working for the military, and it came from all over the world, and mine suggested a new way of looking at the universe over a quantum universe. And what that did is open new doors that were not previously available. Back then, I said that the DNA was a three-dimensional hologram of force space. That means it's who you were, who you are, and who you will be. Now, All right, I, I just want to jump in here if I could, Rick, because uh, we're coming up on a break. But I, when we come back, I, I want you to tell the story of you had at SEAL Corporation uh, someone who was working in the lab or the next lab over uh, who's unfortunately his wife had an incident involving ketamine. And this was one of those sort of fly catching moments. Uh, and I want you to tell us that story. Dr. Richard Allen Miller stays with us here on Coast to Coast. Richard Serrett, I hope you'll uh, stay for the entire ride. It promises to be a wild one. Welcome back to Coast to Coast AM. Richard Serrett coming to you live from Toronto. Uh, This past week has been Holy Week for Eastern Orthodox Christians. So to all of our Greek listeners and uh, family, uh, I wish you a Christos Anesti, Alitos Anesti. Dr. Richard Allen Miller trained super soldiers 45 years ago, and now he wants to share those same secrets with you. Hang with us right here on Coast to Coast AM. Welcome back to Coast to Coast AM. Dr. Richard Allen Miller is with us, physicist, a polymath, a metaphysicist, and also obviously steeped in many other disciplines, including alternative agriculture, uh, you name it. Um, his his knowledge just spans so many different uh, disciplines. Uh, we were talking about uh, ketamine, and when you were at the Seal Corporation, you had um, uh, a colleague working alongside you. And uh, tell that story because this gets into some really. I know strange you like stuff. that story. <laughs> okay, sure. Um, first, let me say. Uh, Welcome, Sexy Steve. That's a neurotic friend of mine. I told him I would say his name uh, because he's depressed. There it is. Um, And thank you for the Jim Morrison. That is who I was. That's what what we were right at that moment. That, that, That song, that feeling, that style captures that moment of the way it was. Thank you. It was dead on, man. <laughs> My pleasure. My ple- I thought you might like that one. I did. You hit me good, man. I loved it. It brought me back. And thank you, third. Third thing was, thanks for trying to slow me down. My friend from Hawaii brought over some Hawaiian coffee, garage style, and I'm wired. <laughs> I normally am asleep. <laughs> when, when are you not? I've never, I've never known you not to be wired. <laughs> no, no, no. What that is... It's not hyper. Uh, I mean, that was, I, I had a little report card that said, uh, uh, Ricky is very disruptive. He asked too many questions. And when they wouldn't uh, put me on ketamine, uh, not ketamine, excuse me, on lithium, <laughs> uh, my mom wouldn't let him. Then they made me have to get up in the middle of class to go to special counseling. And at some point, they figured out I was gifted. And then they tried to do the next worst thing, which was advance me in school. And my mom wouldn't let them do that either. So I'm a normal, crazy monster, mad scientist. All right. All right. The ketamine story, if you will. So Dr. Moore was in one lab doing the ketamine, telepathine, and BZ gas studies. And 
Delgado, before he went to Yale, was on the other lab on the other side of me doing chip implants. And then I was doing what I was doing in the paranormal uh, because nobody could deal with that. Uh, you know, when you start talking about paranormal, the reason it's paranormal is because what are the isolation of variables? You know, I mean, how do you how do you approach something like that? Like extrasensory perception is not about space time. That means you need a different model of a universe that doesn't require space or time as your primary measurements to understand how it works. Okay, and just remind us again what ketamine is. It's it's used by ketamine in, in is a neurotransmitter that when you do a thought in your brain and 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 one of your nerves fires, it releases a series of different neurotransmitters in your brain. And this is moving that information from this place to that place. And there are generally basically eight different neural brain transmitters that move the information from here to there. But it's also a synthetic drug, is it not? I mean, uh, there are a lot of Hollywood celebrities that have been sort of caught up and and, and used uh, academia. Okay, so what happened in the studies were that when it's used, it was a local anesthesia for children. That's what ketamine was originally developed for. Uh, like uh, lithium, uh, I mean, um, uh, procaine, hydrochloride, other things like that they were doing. They were looking at ketamine as a local anesthesia where they shoot it into the muscle and then be able to work on a child. And what it was done intravenously, some paranormal phenomena started happening, which was associated with close encounters. And uh, they wanted to know what that was all about. And so the studies in that area were going around close encounters. Now, Marcia Moore was married to uh, uh, Dr. Moore, and uh, he, the, she belonged to, uh, she had written a book with Llewellyn on astrology, Marcia Moore, and, and Llewellyn Publishing, and then was part of a UFO group up out of Arlington, uh, Washington, with Wayne Aho and George Ademski, the originals that talked about the UFO over Mount Rainier. And there was this little cult up there, and she was part of that. And she stole some ketamine to do some experiments and play up there with the Arlington people. And when they called me in, it was because they had found her severed head in the Florida Everglades two hours before she was dead in Seattle. How does that work? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's the fly-catching moment. That's when they brought in A-Team, and that's one of those mouth-open things, you know, catching flies that we talked about earlier. Uh, but how, do they, yeah. how, do they, how would they verify something like that? How would they verify something like that, that they found her? This is gruesome, admittedly. Okay, but again, her- back then, they were doing dental and, I don't know, retina and some other kinds of things. And they found, her, they found this whole head and identified it um, in forensics as Marcia Moore. And that's when they called, and she was still alive in Seattle by location. We're going to talk about by location, if you'd like, and the concepts of what that means with time and time uh, timelines and things of that nature. But right now, ketamine seemed to be a neurotransmitter that could open up some of those kinds of doors. We're talking time dilation here. Yes, we're talking about a lot of different possibilities of how you might approach isolating what is actually happening here. 
And so you were brought well, into you, that assumption. The way you stressed your 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 point. Now the point is that's what my brainstorming was about. And let me tell you, we, we, you know, we're we're kicking it around. We're all reading comic books, Deathlock, you know, that kind of thing. And we're out there in the urge. I had a metaphysical bookstore just so I could have health research books at stacks of them with Wilhelm Reich, Bowler Lytton, da 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 da, so I could get knowledgeable quickly on how to look at phenomena that had never been described before. But there it is. What is going on? I don't know. You know, and you mentioned so, that you mentioned the, the close encounters with with when when people take ketamine intravenously. Close uh, encounter was written about by Negadev and other writers at that time. Negadev he wrote on the stick aliens that are right behind you on your right or left shoulder. You can't quite see them because they're in two dimension, but you feel them. You sense them. They're there. Just like when you get the chill going up and down your body, that is N, N hyphen dimethyltryptamine. Marcia Moore's head was identified as Marcia Moore when they called the Seattle Police Department, and that's when they confirmed, but she's still here. She's alive. Are you sure that's her head? That's when uh, military called in A-team to figure out what's going on, and we took over. And what I die is, I still don't know. I have theories, but I, I, I don't know how that works. All right, let's get into super soldiers. And, and I want to start with the basics here, and that is when controlling autonomic ner- the, the autonomic nervous system. The first protocol, not the third, which was biofeedback, controlling heart rate and brain waves. The first protocol was extrasensory perception, thinking with the gut, working with instinct, which was outside space-time. That was the first thing we did was we developed a screening questionnaire, a subjective screening questionnaire that would, you know, just you answering honestly with yourself would determine whether or not you're in the top 2% I want to train. And we sent that out to 280,000 plebs. And that's, they took the test. We were left with a body of individuals. And from that, I selected individuals that I then began further training. And that led to the first book, which was extrasensory perception through forms of self-hypnosis. There is an altered state of consciousness that is not over there, or not over there, but right there. That that place, in this state of consciousness, you can, your ability in guessing is 400 times where you are at this present moment with your conscious state. I think it's, so it's pretty obvious idea. why you would want a soldier to, 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 to be, to, to have great you intuition. No, okay. which way to run? Not to think about it, because the upper brain, your, your brain, the one associated with the mind, is there to make all your beliefs true. I wouldn't have seen it if I hadn't believed it. That's the place where the structuring of water starts to enter into psyche, into the matter, changing reality. We so can you're talk saying about that this later I, if you'd like. The models are starting to come very clear to me. Forty-five years later, I'm slowly starting to get a better sense for myself of how to change the movie. Okay, so if you and have, so are you saying two percent? To tell you. Two percent of the population is is psychic or has psychic abilities. Is that what you're Everybody saying? Everybody has this ability. They just ignore it, like walking on a sidewalk and not looking at the cracks where you're going to break your mother's back. But you were looking for the top two percent. 
We were looking at people that when they flipped a coin in the air, nine out of ten times they had it correctly. When I when they tested me at Duke University, which later moved across the street to the foundation for the study of men, did a first psychic tournament in um, uh, it was uh, uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul with Llewellyn at Nosticon conference. They came in, they brought Gene Dixon, Sybil Lake, uh, the usual suspects, James Ertak, uh, John Pericos, others, and they tested all of them doing standard uh, 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 rind test form protocols. And most, like, out of, out of your, your average was 5 out of 20 because there were four variables. And so it was 5 times out of, out of 20 is normal. Um, psychics were running somewhere between 7 and 12, mostly around 9 and 11. And I didn't have a single, using my protocol, not me, using my protocol, I was up, at the lowest I had was 16, and most of mine were 18, 19 out of 20. That means I was, I was scaring even the psychics because of how accurate that place is as an altered state. And you can train anybody to go there. And the first two that win the lottery go on the back end of my book as an advertisement because to win a lottery using this technique is impossible. And I'll explain that later if it gets there on purpose. However, <laughs> if it gets there on purpose. Touch. What's that? No, I was just uh, amused by the, the the term or the phrase "gets there on purpose." Or <laughs> well, purpose <laughs> anyway. and intent are what you're talking about now. Intent and purpose. Intent is what happens at the end of the day, whether you did it kicking and screaming or you flowed. What actually happens is what you meant to have happen. Purpose is slightly different, but. You can't see it as different until you expand your levels of consciousness just so much. It's quite different and will be the distinctional difference why Jade 2.0 software and other algorithms cannot do minority report on you and predict what you're going to do. That's when you're into the purpose rather than intent. But you Our can increase. now can absolutely predict what you're going to do before you do it and know you're going to do it. But using your protocol now for crime detection in New York City, where they are predicting in certain boroughs crimes uh, 28 minutes before they occur. Get yeah, I, I, I've heard about these algorithms that they're using. But, but okay, using so your I using your protocols, let me just jump in here, Rick. Let me, I have to ask you this. This is important. Your, your yeah. protocols or the ones that were developed uh, with your assistance at Seal Corporation, you can increase someone's intuitive ability, psychic ability, what have you, by 400%, is that? Yes, anybody. I, that means if I took a psychic that's really good, they were going to do, remember when the psychic networks were all out and they, you sure. know, phone calls so much a, a minute? They wanted to do a thing like they did certification of a psychic using a system of measurement that was out of Duke and then training them to enhance and do better ability for advertising on a uh, certification program on who's a real certified psychic, literally, kind of thing, not alleged. And so that was a thing back in the 90s. But this, in the 70s, we were able to take anybody. And today, that protocol is used for all plebs in Annapolis now in their junior year. 
It is absolutely essential. You understand how to control your mind with hypnosis so that you can slide from one state of consciousness to another. As you do, you change what doors you can open and which ones are not available to you. That's what altered states are. They're gifts from God to be able to do things you cannot do in a conscious state. And, and these protocols, you share these in, in power tools for the 21st century? Oh, yeah. No, those are all the toys, the enhancements. The bad news on that. The bad news is, like meditation, if you take 30 years of meditation, you know how to do it, really. If you get there in three years using brain drivers, you need, like biofeedback, you need to reinforce yourself every four or five years, like changing thermal. We could change the temperature at any point in my body, eight degrees up or down from where it is right then. Now, that is something I can still do, and now that I've been doing it for 45 years, I no longer need to go back and re-remember the sound or song or way in my mind's eye, I tweak myself to change the heat in my fingers because they're freezing, and I need to move my blood flow into that part of my body more, or limit it because I don't have a tourniquet. Well, I, wa- I want to focus on the psychic ability for a moment because I do... I- I do want to talk about autonomic nervous systems uh, later, but I, I wanted to focus on, the, on in, enhancing one's intuitive ability, listening to your gut and so forth. Yeah, that's the enteric nervous system, your gut, the bacteria. That is a habitat that forms up what is even more efficient in primary information before it's directed to the brain or the heart. Yes, the heart has centers as well for love and all that stuff. We're not going to talk about that, but that's all part of the uh, chakra systems of more highly evolved nerve ganglia points in the body. And each one of those ganglia points from your gonads on up, heart, all of them have specific transmitters. The neurotransmitters are the ones that are talked about in the brain. However, you will find more of certain ones in the gut than you will the brain because that's where the information first starts because it's a higher resolution, which means it's closer to the primary, and that's outside space-time where your past, your present, and your future are as one and you are me, and I am you, and I am the walrus, that kind of thing. <laughs> Cuckoo ca <ka-choo>. All right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there it is, Richard. I love it. You uh, were such a delight to visit with. Oh, likewise, my friend. Likewise. No, no, man. I was like, I loved showing you the woods and the bunkers and all the rest of it. <laughs> well, we often hear that expression, you know, listen to your gut. But, I mean, that's true, right? That's what you're saying, that so your that gut never lies. But hard. how do you tap into that? How do you tap into it? It is a song in your body, and it sounds different for each of us. And that's why journaling and forming internal dialogue is so critical and is the reason all saints in history have stressed the importance of training the mind and making it disciplined so it was a tool, not a driver. All right, listen, we'll take a time out. We'll come back. Dr. Richard Allen Miller, training super soldiers, and he'll share the secrets with you, the listener, when we come back. I mentioned it's Orthodox Easter or Pascha. I also want to extend my wishes for a happy and blessed Passover to our Jewish friends. Uh, Just a reminder that inventor Aaron Murakami 
uh, will join us in the second half of the program. And we've posted some videos uh, where you can see a demonstration of Aaron's plasma ignition system. Just go to coasttocoastam.com, go to the homepage, and you'll find the video on the carousel. Uh, there are uh, three videos, six demonstrations, and they're, uh, they're titled a Murakami Plasma Videos. What if you could control your heart rate, your blood pressure, your respiration rate, your core body temperature with your mind? Dr. Richard Allen Miller can teach you to do that. He can teach you what he taught Navy SEALs. Would you find that useful? I think you might. Stay with us on Coast to Coast AM. Dr. Richard Allen Miller stays with us, the author of ESP Induction Through Forms of Self-Hypnosis, Native Plants of Commercial Importance, uh, power tools for the 21st century, which we're touching on right now. Uh, the Encyclopedia of Alternative Agriculture, the Magical and Ritual Use of Aphrodisiacs, the Magical and Ritual Use of Herbs, the Magical and Ritual Use of Perfumes, the Modern Alchemist, the Potential of Herbs as a Cash Crop, Workbook 1, Power Tools for the 21st Century, Workbook 2, Can You Live Off the Grid for 30 Days? So back to power tools and, and super soldiers. Now, um, I mentioned this to you uh, Rick, I think a couple of weeks ago, I recently interviewed on my uh, my my other uh, program a gentleman out of Holland by the name of Wim Hof, aka the Iceman, and and um, he, he's someone who um, is able to uh, control his core body temperature. He's he's re- uh, run marathons in the Arctic Circle in barefoot, uh, nothing but shorts. He can survive extreme uh, temperatures, heat, cold, oxygen deprivation. Uh, so he's basically doing now what you were on about 45 years ago. Yeah, that's about right. That's uh, that's actually correct. And there were and have been Sherpas even back then that were walking up Mount Rainier barefoot. That's why we studied them. By the way, I need to put a small caveat in. I just really appreciate you a lot, Richard. Um, Regarding cold fusion, I'm making a postscript. I want everybody to hear this. Basically, if you're going to talk about cold fusion, you must call it an open system rather than a closed system. And the thermodynamic laws are only applicable for a closed system. And basically, this would be a multiverse you then would use a Helon model and discuss what information is and then go to knot theory, not string theory or quantum foam, but using knot theory and especially Lewis Kaufman's work and then, of course, Benditti. And, All right. Um, well, we, we, uh, we're going to touch on that, actually, closed systems and open systems yeah, with, and with Aaron Murakami a, a little later. In my new book that's called Rock the Casimir or Adventures in Time Travel. Yeah. <laughs> Rock the Casimir with apologies to the clash. Well, <laughs> Thank you for that. topology and uh, uh, Roger Penrose and the geometric universe. It is about geometry as a more primitive form of information and the way neurotransmitters lay out and open and lock certain doors in the way they pass information as a metaphor. All right. Now, I want to talk about I want to talk about uh, the protocols sure. for controlling. And, I mean, how does Wim Hof do it? How do you do it? How does how does one control autotomic uh, nervous functions like heart rate, respiration, core body temperature, all of these things? How, give us some when for instance. You hear blood rushing through your eardrum. You hear a high pitched 
whistle that may or not be insects. These are the sounds in your body that you have chosen to ignore, like that stone on the ground. You're looking at the plant, but you're not looking at the rocks. You're not looking at the soil, you're looking at the plants, you're looking at different layers of information, and you discriminate. It isn't about seeing, it's about filtering. And when you realize that that's what your senses are, they're not senses at all, they're filters. Now you can understand that there's other things going on that you have put below a certain level of consciousness as unimportant and not necessary for your immediate intent or, um, you know, uh, moment. And those are there. They're being registered. They're part of a whole vast system of structured water memory systems that you have access to. And what you're doing is you're ignoring that sound, what you might call tinnitus or uh, the shabad. You know, it's talked about in the appendishad. So there are sounds in your body that you're listening to, and once you focus on that, it's different for each person. Once you can catch that sound, now you can manipulate certain autonomic functions like histamine response to allergies and or so you're not allergic anymore, so that you're not this anymore. You can put your, basically like allergies, is your body over-responding to a stimulus. That's all it is. And what you want to do is slow that release of histamines down like you would a snake bite. And you can do that with a tourniquet around your neck. I don't recommend that one. That's kind of weird. You know, but what you can do is slow the blood flow, that whistle in your ear that we were talking about, down so you can hear it slowly going down in frequency. And now you're going into delta sleep. That is how it works. It sounds. I got so good back then before I started training others. I had to do it to myself, right? So I got to the point where I could, with a electromyograph, they would put it on my arm so I could flinch a nozzle because I couldn't speak when they would ask me a question when I was in Delta State, somewhere around maybe five, 5.5 cycles. I was down past dream states. I was down into deep sleep, and yet I was conscious and able to answer questions auditorily coming to me while I'm sound asleep. Well, uh, the, the benefits for a soldier obviously are, are obvious. If they fall into, let's say, icy waters. Uh, yeah, let's, then they let's... Can, I was at sea for two days in the Bering Sea when a sub missed its pickup, and that saved my life. You I were in the icy the water for two days. Mandrake, the magician. And I, I went right straight down in to stasis. And when they found me, I was blue. But I'm still here. It saved my life. Exposure. All right. Let's say for someone who is not likely to fall into icy waters. Let's say, for example, um, uh, someone has Parkinson's. And uh, could, can you train that person to, to um, modulate uh, or their, their dopamine levels in order to control symptoms, for example? They're using ibogaine and other kinds of new uh, drugs that will 
unlock certain parts of the way the brain functions, which is not site selective, like for opiates, like, for example, gambling and spousal abuse. Those are considered addictive, and yet they don't have site selections. And now the French are suggesting that it's a PGO wave in the occipital region of the cerebral cortex, that once you can focus in the directional alpha shift, you can actually change habits, behaviors, and addictions, including spousal abuse and gambling. That means that all of these phenomena, pedophile, drug addict, is a learned behavior in the way children are watching their parents and how they did it. Wow. Okay. That's parasympathetic. And what you want to do is regenerate that. And there are reboot drugs now that they're discovering. Ibogaine is now being studied at 11 different universities. I watched them take a 16-year IV user off of Amsterdam Park in a 30-hour nightmare of clinical, it had to be a clinical section. He can't just do it. It doesn't work like that. And what happened is at the end of that, end of the 30 hours, that kid had no uh, withdrawal. And when he lit up in his outtake, debriefing, was lighting up a cigarette, he looked at it, put it down, because he doesn't smoke anymore either. Those are the little rituals that we do every morning when we flush the toilet and we have to put toothpaste on the toothbrush before the toilet clears. These little games we play, this way I'm going to walk out this way because this way I'll get laid and if I walk out that way I won't. You know, that those games are what set up our behavior patterns and who we are and, and, and uh, our addictions. And it takes three months of active participation, that's what Coley said, three periods of the moon, to change a habit. You have to be proactive in changing those sounds. And that's, you know, reminding yourself with a refrigerator note saying you're fat. <laughs> Got this little note there reminding you you're trying to keep it together. And those are the mindful part of training the mind and the body to function as a tool. And that's why I would be called an avatar. I'm not here. I'm habiting a mechanical golem, if you will, kind of thing. It's not a golem, but you get the idea. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's not me. It's a shell I use. And it has ways of communicating to me if I'm misabusing it, which I am all the time. And we all of us are. We're here physical thing, to be sick, spiritually, we don't have a clue. The higher self, usually an androgynous, is your future. Okay, let me get back to neurotransmitters here, uh, Rick, so I can uh, keep this on the the, the rails here. The neurotransmitters. Okay, the (laughs) neurotransmitters are how you move that intent. I've decided I want to do something, and I fire my heart to fire it up a little higher, bring my heart rate up. The neurotransmitter is what takes that thought and moves it from here to there. How about, for example, uh, endorphins? Can you regulate the flow of endorphins uh, so that you would be impervious to pain? Not endorphins. Uh, Yes, endorphins. And and, uh, they are the opiate sites of um, dopamine and pleasure. There's other sites for other things. The chill 
for example, that thing that goes up your body, that neurotransmitter is N-comma and hyphen dimethyltryptamine and is the neurotransmitter that gives you a sense of God. That's why Rick Strassman calls it the spirit molecule. It is the, that is how God most likely communicates to us is using that neurotransmitter. It's not as high up as ketamine. It's down a little bit. It's on a more primal level, but it's up past the first four, which is archetypal. And that's where you and I are the same, which means if I know how this works, you automatically have that in your database because we are the length, girth, and width of the walrus. Cuckoo, cachoo. And that's (laughs) how it works. All right. You're good to take some calls, Dr. Uh, Miller. <laughs> yes, right. Oh, yes, fine, sure. I love right. mentioning. There's a reason I do because the random call has a purpose for where the end of this information dialogue is going to your higher self. That's how All it right. works. Let's go to uh, the higher self of James from Kingman, Arizona, west of the Rockies. Uh, good morning. Welcome to Coast to Coast AM, Jim. Thank you. Right on, brother. Uh, can, I, can I mention two things? Uh, I was, first, Doctor, I was wondering if uh, back in the 70s in grade school, we used to go to Virginia Beach and Myrtle Beach, and well, I like to spend some time at Edgar Casey's ARE and, you know, in this ESP enhancement class, they had this envelope test, and I used to just, you know, I'd pick up my pen and sketch so fast before I could think, and they'd, I'd get mad if I thought, and I threw my pen down, and I asked for more paper and asked me what I was doing, so I showed them, you know, and then I showed them I'd trace my sketch back. You know, I told him it was a subconscious sketch. Then I'd trace it back, and then I'd just draw a picture out of it. Anyway, uh... The picture and what you drew is how your specific future timeline is trying to talk to your present and changing who you are in the past. Like, let me give you the example for me. When I did it, it wasn't Navy SEALs. It was called SEAL Corporation. And today, it's now got a big modern urban myth about SEAL units and how they are supermen. But in fact, when I was doing it, that didn't even exist. And that's how your artwork is not so much for the public, but is a way of your dialoguing with yourself. Can I say mention something? Else? Go ahead, Jim. Uh, keep a diary. Okay. You must think on your feelings when you do that. It will be in the feelings, not the object. It will be in the feelings that your subconscious higher self will be communicating to you in the present, your future. Yeah, All right, Jim had a follow up. Go ahead, Jim. Uh, okay, uh, there was one time I got in the neck is a king cobra venom, and uh, well, I I lost, you know, I was uh, hooked up in intensive care. And this is down in Phoenix. Anyway, wait a second, uh, wait a second. Did you just say a king cobra bit you in the neck? It, it, it was an extinct type of scorpion with king cobra venom, and they don't know how it got there. The Edgar Casey Foundation is in Phoenix right now with Mike Mandeville, my roommate back in 1970. He runs. All right, but I, I got to hear more about this, this king cobra bite. Okay, well, anyway, uh, the doctor didn't know what it was. Uh, he came back 11 hours later, but I had left my body 11 times. is the only way I could survive. But each time I came back into my body, when I drifted too far, my brain waves, whenever they came back on, there were not just four waves, but there were two sets of four. First, they were completely parallel, and then they settled into two sets of four, alpha, beta, delta, and theta, and then they merged into one single set. I just thought maybe you 
might like to know that. I watched it 11 times in that experience. An and then anyway, they came up from the uh, University of... How about Eben experiment? Hang on, Jim. Let Dr. Miller respond. Okay, Jim, let Dr. Miller respond. Go ahead. Yeah, how about check out Eben Alexander's Proof of Heaven? There is a neuro uh, a surgeon that died and did, had a near-death experience like you're talking about, and will discuss the concept of brainwaves. What you're doing is resetting certain timelines. That's basically, and that is called a P300 wave. And it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's done with a functional MRI. There's only one, I think, now in, in you know, at, at um, oh, where is it? It's in Bethesda, I think. But that functional MRI will measure what's called a brain, brain fingerprint. Your brain pattern is a fingerprint exactly like your, like your fingerprints on your hand. It's unique. And what you're doing is resetting the uniqueness of ego and who you are in distinguishing yourself from me. All right, Jim, thank you for the call. Uh, Doc, we, we are coming up on another break, but I want to start the conversation now, and we'll get into it again after the break. And that has to do with, we touched on Tom, time dilation and uh, ketamine and so forth. But yeah. are you, uh, when you were training uh, soldiers, or even now in your, your uh, power tools for the 21st century, uh, are you able to uh, train people how to alter... I think I know the answer here, but it's kind of rhetorical. Alter their perception of time, because I'm thinking as, for example, a martial artist, a boxer. Yes, yes. That would be very useful to me. Yes. Let's start that. Sacred and profane. It is when you go closer to your true purpose, you fall into what is called timelessness, like lovemaking. It becomes timeless and is sacred, as opposed to the profane where... Are we there yet? Are we there yet? <laughs> yeah. We are there yet. We are. We're coming up at the break. We'll, we'll uh, continue this conversation on time dilation and much more with physicist Dr. Richard Allen Miller right here in Coast to Coast AM. Don't go away. Uh, you can listen to my weekly syndicated radio program, The Conspiracy Show, live on Zoomer Radio right here in Toronto uh, or on one of our growing list of affiliate stations across North America. Just go to strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca for more information. And you can also download the free Conspiracy Show app and listen anytime, anywhere. Dr. Richard Allen Miller, how to time travel when Coast to Coast AM continues right after this. Welcome back to Coast to Coast AM. Richard Serrett coming to you from Coast's Toronto affiliate talk radio AM 640. Just a reminder, top of the hour, inventor Aaron Murakami will be with us to, to uh, share insights into his plasma ignition system. Uh, right now, Dr. Richard Allen Miller stays with us, and we'll get to your phone calls as well in, in just a moment. I, I did want to uh, go back. Before the break, we were talking about um, uh, changing your perception of time. I remember as a, as a child watching the great Muhammad Ali and the way he would avoid punches, uh, and, and, you know, some of the great martial artists, uh, is this an ability they have is to, is to somehow change their perception of time to slow things yeah, down? Yeah, you so do they can... that with breath. That's the first and last thing you do coming into and exiting this universe. And it's breath control. And they talk about it in India. They've, it's a science. And basically... When you're in extreme danger, you sometimes your consciousness will shift to a place where everything 
slows down and you have all the time in the world to make decisions on how you have to twist your body. I first encountered this doing a climb on uh, in in Washington State. It was a class four, and my I was going across an ice field, and a gust of wind blew me off the cliff, and I fell over a hundred feet into rocks. And what I did, everything slowed down for me, and I was able to twist my body and prepare it for just before I hit of going into deep shock. My dad dug me out. I was fine. Everything slowed down, and from then on, I realized that it was possible. Then, after having 18 years of Hangao training, I met a Tai Chi master from Victoria, B.C., up on Vancouver Island. He came down to Dr. Bastier's class and used to teach Tai Chi every week to martial arts. And he talked to me special on how to change my perception of time with breath control so that I was experiencing it as Tai Chi, where in fact I was moving as Hung Gao. And I didn't experience that. And that was a tool where you can teach how to train martial arts to a point of paranormal. Now, and, if, um, and, and if people read this... That, if- if yeah, people read this possible. in Power Tools... And not only is it possible, I can do it now at any moment. I can change my perception of time with my breath. Now, that's going from the profane into the sacred. There is a place which is called the moment. And when you're in the moment, that is where you're literally outside space-time, where your future and your present is dialoguing and changing the cavitation ball of your past, which is a primary wave. Okay, let me get to a caller here, uh, Rick. Let me get to a caller. People are being very patient, and we'll go to the uh, first-time <laughs> first time caller first time caller list, uh, uh, line, and Chuck is in Las Vegas. Chuck, good morning. Welcome to Coast. How are you doing tonight? Very well, thank you. Yeah, I, I had a simple question about, like, all white uh, here in Las Vegas, and uh, just wondering if they, you know, taught anybody in special forces or gave anybody uh, technology uh, that was beyond the human uh, comprehension. All right, so we're going off the board to talk extraterrestrials, uh, Dr. Miller. Uh, what do you know about the tall whites? Well, I have a memory of Area 51, Broom Lake, uh, at Level 8, where I was called in, not part of my regular thing, I was called in because something requested my presence. And I have no idea what it was. I have never done anything like that. What happened was, he wants to know about my close encounter with a tall alien. I don't know what it is. Uh, let me say what happened. Um, I was left in this room with a pile of top-secret documents, of which I just started grabbing them and reading them and absorbing it. One hour later, the door opened, and there was this entity across the room that was possibly seven and a half feet tall, and she felt feminine. And this is what led me to do the studies in synthetic telepathy, because I couldn't understand how I could hear voices in my head that was no sound. And um, this, what happened next 
is I remember feeling safe. I remember that she had a specific thing she needed to do with me. I had no idea what it was. And I was there possibly three-quarters of an hour with a, with cameras. There were several cameras on me, and neither of us moved. Yeah, we, we were just there. I was at one end of the room, the other. And that's where uh, 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 my memory uh, starts to uh, – I can't get it. It's there. I can't get at it. Now, that that time, we were experimenting with BZ and uh, what was it called? Um, uh Alvad or something that it was something that would change the jump potential between neurons so that you could block memory. Uh, CNV, contingent negative variation. I don't know. Um, something happened. I've had three events in my life where I can't get at specific memories. I have no idea why. And I can get at almost anything. I'm getting older. Um, you know, I sometimes can't remember, oh, God, who sang that song? And then I will remember at some point because my mind won't give it up. It'll keep working it until that memory open again. It's like using them frequently keeps them exercise, like running or swimming. If you use your mind, it stays fresh. And according to Ward Dean, in the biological aging mechanisms, he's a surgeon general for the Marine Corps, he has stated that all aging processes are reversible. And I'm 72 now, and my memory today is as clear as when I was a child or more so. Now, I've done some memory-enhancing drugs over the years like uh, vasopressin and Diener and hydrogene sublingual, and those things will help your memory, but I only had to use them once uh, when I was in my 50s, and now I'm in my 70s. And what about yeah. food? What about superfoods? Because I know you talk about this in Power Tools. Uh, uh, superfoods, well, not only to enhance... Physical pain. If you want uh, uh, an intellectual giant, there's a metaphor. The physical pain, it's like going to a fat doctor. What's wrong with that picture? A doctor that's fat isn't going to be able to do anything for himself. How can he help you? That's the metaphor you must use in everything that you approach in your life. And a teacher can only take you as far as they themselves have been. And so that's why you advance and study under a number of different people. So you have a broader, you know, spectrum of sight. All right. Let's go to the wild card line. Wayne is in Chicago. Wayne, good morning. Welcome to Coast to Coast. Good morning. Fascinating guest. Uh, Richard, uh, that is very uh, peculiar, funny that, you brought up Muhammad Ali because uh, I just learned how to tweet not too long ago, and I was tweeting to him and telling him that the thing that fascinated me the most about him was his ability to slip punches, just like you. Uh-huh, ah, there you go. That's very Synchronicity. fascinating that you said that. But well, anyway, I'm guessing uh, Dr. Miller isn't surprised. I'm sorry. I'm 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 saying that you're probably not surprised by that interesting little synchronicity that Wayne well, just shared you know, with us. Muhammad Ali obviously was able to do things nobody else could do. His dance, just his movement, his dance, that in itself was way beyond anything anybody else did. The dance, I you know I was impressed. Wayne, did you have a, a follow up, a question? Yes. Uh, 
I I was watching a show a few years ago uh, with uh, Dan Aykroyd. It was his show. And uh, the show was about a government team, U.S. government team. And they would uh, uh, concentrate on things like coast-to-coast subject-type things. Like, for instance, they would they tracked down a werewolf who killed a state trooper in Indiana, for instance, things like that. But in particular, what I want to ask now is, uh, they had some kind of machine where they could see things before they happened. And one of their colleagues was getting ready to be killed in a car. But they saw the car accident before she actually got killed, and they saved her. I want to ask your guest, do you know anything about that, what I'm talking about? Because Dan Aykroyd had it on one of his shows. Uh, yeah, Sci-Factor Sci- yeah, Chronicles. Sci- always, yeah. a radius seizure is what that's called in extrasensory perception, where you use an external device to communicate information to consciousness, like precognition and those kinds of event horizons. Basically, you use the tarot cards, uh, the bones, the I Ching, it was using external devices to communicate information you already had. Now, with algorithms and the terms of setting up an artificial intelligence, we now have gotten to the place of minority report where they can see when a crime is going to be committed before it happens. Now, that place is called Jade Point 2 software, and now there's some new things out of Clifford Algebra, and of course, Cliff High is using Gertzel's Arms Algebra. These are algorithm things that take chatter on the internet, distill it down for most probable, and actually can predict a crime in the boroughs of New York City 28 minutes before it occurs. They don't know who's going to do it yet, they know it's going to happen at this location. That kind of thing. All right, now, Wayne, thank you for the call. Let, uh, let yeah. me just uh, ask you something, Rick, about the book, P- uh, Power Tools for the 21st Century. Now, these yes, things that you're, that you're talking about, they, they, they must have taken you decades to perfect. If I'm reading that book, I mean, how am I going to be able to put these things into practice without you know, working with uh, you know, an expert, someone like yourself? Well, there's, um, today, they're off the shelf. You know, biofeedback was, we had to make individual single gain amplifiers. That later became John Fluke for the Boeing Company, by the way. That single gain amplifier. That means it could go down to microvolts without any kind of noise. It was a clean single gain amplifier. It was a right on target. It could measure brain waves off the scalp at 10 to the minus 6 volts. It was accurate. And um, didn't vary a lot with drift and other kinds of creepy stuff. And once we had that, now they're off the shelf and they have all kinds of gizmos and enhancements and things like that. Brain drivers, frequency following function, pause to enhance the quality of meditation. I was able, using brain drivers, to achieve what um, Persinger called uh, bliss states you know, measured in yogis and people that have been meditating for 40 years, I was able to do it in four years using brain drivers. It wasn't as clean as a 40-year meditator, but now that I've been now doing that for 40 years, I've got that part down cold. And uh, when I say that, that's where you start, training the mind, not letting it wander, being able to bring it into a certain altered state. Now, in the ESP book, 
I equate a 102 different physical measurements on the body related to the depth of hypnosis. Over here is tweaking, over there is paranoia, up here is over da da da, here's your best scary for guessing. There are windows of between this state and that state. There's 102 different physical body measurements that will allow you to navigate where you are in your depth of hypnosis. In Power Tools, the Chapter 8 has a system that with John Curtis Gowan developed on the development of the psychedelic individual, having nothing to do with psychedelics. It had to do with enlightenment, and it was an ontology of mystical states. And there All right, a here's a different state. Of different here's a different state. Consciousnesses. All right, let's go to a different state, east of the Rockies, and Dan is in Manassas, Virginia. Good morning, Dan. Welcome to Coast. Yes, uh, first of all, to show my thanks to you, Dr. Miller, because I've been tapping into your mind for years. I am a sightless empath, uh, synesthete, and polymath, and uh, it's only going to take a few seconds. We can use this. (laughs) Thank you. No, no. I love it. I love it. And this is, I have a gift for you, and, and Richard, this will be the first time ever on Coast to Coast. AM that anybody has ever done this. I'm going to give you a code, Dr. Miller, that you can use to receive from me any time for the rest of your life a hologram. You have my permission to tie in to everything from my brain to the resonance matrix of my gut to interdimensional higher self, and I'm going to give you this code, and then we can go from there. It is heart, diamond, Spiral sphere, then it starts. Let's start all over. I'm going to write these down. Could you send me? Yes, sir. Tell me when you're ready. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, heart. Wait a minute. Yeah, okay, yes. Diamond. Yes. Spiral sphere, then star, S T A R, then star, then era. What was after star? Yeah, two stars, then oh, two era, stars. then era, then 21, then quantum, then torsion, then harmonics, convergence. Now, I have used this system using what these days people call non-physical patterning software via microconstructs of the Mobius figure eight energy storage loop for both digital and analog and combination means. Now, well, the, you know, the, what you're doing is uh, the original line symbols and then moving to an octave. Yes, yes, sir. Right. I was a little concerned he might be unleashing some sleeper cell somewhere. Yes, I work with We're on the same page. I work with brain drivers uh, using uh, both what people can call the mental equivalents to uh, a variety of, of matters, and I also use uh, audio uh, feedback loops. With uh, have, you, have you heard of Kelly Howell and her work with uh, Kundalini using brain drivers? Uh, no, I haven't, she's sir, but what I want you to do... The mind, and, and she's out near you in, uh, I think, in Taos, either Albuquerque or Taos, New Mexico. Okay, All right, so Dan, good luck with that. i got to let you go, Dan. 
yeah. Dr. Miller, we are just about out of time. First stuff because it uses that symbolism exactly for Kundalini, and she's using brain drivers on it. I know exactly what you're doing. Okay, what Dr. Miller, we're just about out of time here. Plus. All right, Dr. Miller, how do people get a hold of uh, Power Tools for the 21st Century? Okay, so I have primary websites. RichardAllenMiller.com is my website, A-L-A-N, RichardAllenMiller.com, or you can go to Facebook at DocRam.com. That's my blog, and both have bookstores. And that bookstore is at Oak-Publishing.com. Oak-Publishing.com. Yeah, the Organization for the Advancement of Knowledge. I kept my old think tank from the early 70s, and Excellent. it's now my publishing house for lectures, writing, and research. And Always that's a pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Miller. Until we meet again. Aaron Murakami on the other side, the plasma ignition system. Oh, you don't want to miss this one. Back with more of Coast to Coast AM, my name is Richard Serrett. Thanks for hanging out. Hey, say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett, and the website, once again, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca. Aaron Murakami is standing by to challenge the orthodox understanding of the laws of thermodynamics. He wants to share his plasma ignition system with the world. The question is, will he be able to circumvent the protectors of the status quo? We'll find out when Coast continues right after this. Aaron Murakami is an internationally sought-after author, researcher, and inventor. He's committed to the development and distribution of information and technologies that have been suppressed from the general public. Aaron has open-sourced many gigabytes of his work in Energetic Forum for many years. That includes his work on the plasma ignition, the gray tube, the water fuel cell technology, the Ainsley inductive resistor circuits, and others. He's also a founder of Energetic Forum and Energy Science Forum, which is a combined membership of over 100,000 and is the primary organizer for the Energy Science and Technology Conference. Aaron is committed to the development and distribution of highly disruptive information. He's a former health food store owner and has spearheaded many ventures. He's a consultant to several technology groups. His books include The Quantum Key and A Course in Mind Power, his invention of the world's most efficient plasma ignition system that actually burns water in an engine has been awarded a U.S. patent. His other works include How to Build a Jet Engine, Ignition Secrets, and Water Fuel Secrets. Aaron Murakami, welcome to Coast to Coast AM. How are you? Thank you very well, Richard. It's an honor to be on Coast to Coast. Uh, first of all, I have to ask you about Spokane. Uh, my first visit to your fine city a couple of months ago, and uh, less than that, uh, you have these incredible whitewater rapids running right through town. Uh, but what is it about uh, about Spokane? Because as I discovered, and one of the reasons I went there, uh, not only to visit you, but other people, uh, Paul Bab- Babcock and others, there are so many inventors there in Spokane working on advanced energy devices. What is it about Spokane? I'm not really sure, but it is uh, it is like one of these little vortex cities. It's a kind of a small city, but a lot of big things happen here. Uh, here in about seven hours, the world's largest uh, timed road race is going to start off, known as Bloomsday. Uh, a lot of people don't know a lot about Spokane, but um, for some reason this area attracts a lot of uh, innovative researchers and developers and in all kinds of different technologies, and a lot of them stay pretty low-profile, so you'd never know who they are. 
but um, a lot of the people who are considered to be some of the pioneers in the modern-day Tesla science, so-called free energy technologies, just happen to be swarming all around the uh, inland northwest area. Now, how does a young, if I can use this term, a young army brat who grew up in military bases in the United States and also in Japan, uh, because you're of Japanese descent, uh, how did you become an inventor and, 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 and what some might call a, a, you know, a, a disruptive thinker? Um, actually, it's an Air Force brat, <laughs> uh, kind of close. But um, growing up, um, always always have been uh, fairly mechanically inclined. Uh, my father was a mechanic before he joined the uh, uh, Air Force, and my mom's dad he was also a, a mechanic and always tinkering on things. And you know, even my mom worked on her own car when she was younger, and uh, kind of souped it up, had an old Camaro. And uh, little by little, after I got out of high school, and you know, didn't really know kind of what I wanted to do with my life, I wanted to. Uh, become a software engineer and went to school for a little bit at uh, Wright State University when my uh, dad was stationed at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and then kind of dropped out and uh, little by little I kind of became unhappy with how the world operates, you know, the so-called system and and um, because of some of the experiences that, uh, you know, myself and my family went through uh, when my dad was retiring from the Air Force, which was not, you know, too much of a happy situation, um, I kind of got into a little rebellious mode, but... Um, and left Spokane, went back and forth to Japan quite a few times, and uh, back around 19, June of 95, I uh, decided to plant my feet in Spokane and uh, started to research uh, energy technologies and consciousness technologies, and the Internet was kind of new, and I didn't really know what direction to go, and kind of dropped it all because it, I didn't really know what I was looking at online, and little by little, through all these crazy synchronicities, one person um, right after another would introduce me to somebody who was uh, considered, you know, the top in the world in their own field. And little by little learning from them and kind of seeing what what, princip- what the principles are that their technologies operate under, it kind of got the wheels kind of kind of clicking. And little by little, um, I started to apply those parameters through how I looked at different technologies to see, um, you know, how I could, you know, make them better or bring them closer to what, you know, some people would call, you know, free energy technologies. I remember you telling me when we were visiting uh, that you would be on a, a, a website over in, in Japan, I think it was, and you'd be checking out these so-called free energy sites and, and learning about them. And then only to arrive in Spokane many years later, and you would find out that the the individual that was responsible for putting that website together was right there in the Spokane area. Yeah, um, actually, I, I was in Spokane, and I was staying at my parents' house at the time, and um, I was looking online for um, energy and, you know, perpetual motion. And, you know, at that time, I didn't know a resistor from a transistor and just searching online for energy technologies. And a lot of it I could see was was junk. Um, but there was one website I kept going to over and over and over that kind of intrigued me. And I saw these little diagrams of uh, little motors and generators and, and some little magnetic type uh, setups and I didn't really know enough to understand what it was, but there was just something about it that kept drawing me back to it. Well, after I kind of dropped everything and, and several years later, it was maybe three or four years later, one of my friends, Roger Estes, who is a uh, 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 the first and only non-Chinese person in the world to be certified as a natural-born Qigong master by the Chinese Qigong delegation. Uh, at that time, most of my time was spent with the natural healing and, and consciousness development and that kind of thing. And we were looking at... Um, developing some uh, LED healing devices 
this is almost 20 years ago before a lot of companies, you know, got into that field. I worked with some of the people who actually pioneered a lot of that. And they were they met somebody uh, through a mutual attorney that was working with an electronics company. And when Roger gets back, he, he tells me he met with somebody that had this little motor in a case that um, when it started running, it kept itself charged up. Uh, instantly, you know, that kind of blew my mind, and I just had to meet this person. And so the next day, he uh, Roger drove me out there, and I met somebody named John Bedini. And this was around 1999. And um, I saw a demonstration of that motor. He just turned it, and it started picking up its own speed. The funny thing about it was was that it had dead batteries in it. But it sped up, and it actually charged those batteries up, turned a propeller, was blinking lights, and it was producing mechanical work. And I said, well, how can I find out about this? And he asked if I was on the Internet, and uh, I, I said I was, and he gave me a website. And so as soon as I got back home, I looked up that website, and it was the website that I kept going to over and over and over several years before. And out of anywhere in the world, he just happens to live about 45 minutes from my house. There you go. That's what I'm talking about. There's something magical about Spokane. You use the term uh, vortex. Uh, I'm wondering if it has anything to do with uh, all the, uh, you know, the underground water systems that, that run through Spokane. Yeah, I've never thought about that too much, but we do have uh, what's considered to be probably one of the top aquifers on the planet, which was uh, created during the um, Great Missoula Flood about, I don't know, nine to 12,000 years ago. And, um, but there's, you know, th- this is a very interesting place. You know, for a long time, I-, I kept getting out of this place because I couldn't stand it. I didn't really know anybody. I figured, you know, maybe someday I'll come back to Spokane, uh, you know, maybe when I'm retired. Uh, and so when I planted my feet in June of 95, kind of went on a little, uh, you know, kind of went on my soul-searching mission, I guess you could say. And I kind of dropped everything for a couple years and then... Little by little, you know, it turns out that everything I've ever been looking for was right here in my own backyard. With the, with and now others are coming there to be around people like yourself and, and yes. Bedini and Paul Babcock and others, and so it's just sort of multiplying. Uh, before I get you to describe uh, the, the plasma ignition system, I, I want to point out that our webmaster, Sean Latisor, has posted some videos in the carousel at coasttocoastam.com. Just go to the homepage, and people can see your demonstration uh, of your device on, uh, on uh, I guess there's three separate videos, but about six different demonstrations. Again, you just go to the homepage, coasttocoastam.com, and you find the slide that says Murakami Plasma Videos. And there they can find three videos uh, and about six demonstrations in all. Maybe they can watch them during the break or, or uh, after, after the program and get a real sense of what we're talking about. Now, explain... In really simple language, Aaron, not for the Coast listeners, but for the host who struggled with grade 9 physics and grade 11 chemistry, okay. uh, explain what a plasma ignition system is. Let's start with what it looks like. Okay. Um, if, if you're familiar with what a regular spark looks like at a spark plug, it kind of looks like a little high-voltage streamer, which is this little illuminated light stream like a piece of hair that goes between two points on a spark plug. And when that's in the engine and you have the air-fuel mixture, as soon as it sparks, that spark is what ignites the fuel mixture to create an explosion to push the piston down. Um, To enhance the ignition systems, there's all kinds of performance ignition systems that um, increase the strength of that spark uh, to make it a little bit more impressive, but it's still just a regular conventional spark. It's just a little bit beefier. Um, the most common type of performance ignition system would probably be a capacitive discharge ignition, 
which means you're putting stronger power into an ignition coil than just attaching a battery to it, you know, through the timing system. And it gives a bit, bit of a beefier spark. What's well, the advantage of having a beefier spark? Um, you can uh, burn more fuel, more of the same fuel that's in there, which means you're going to get an increase in uh, mileage, uh, increase in power, and a decrease in emissions. At least that's the goal with people who are putting them in their cars for racing. They don't really care about the emissions uh, or the mileage. They, they just want more power. In other and, words, with a bigger spark, you're burning more of the fuel, so there's no waste. Because a lot of the fuel, I don't know what percentage is. I was shocked when I heard it, but it's it's very high. That the actually you know sort of drizzles out the tailpipe uh, in liquid form. I mean, there's a lot of waste. Yeah, most of it is wasted. I mean, the average um, car on the road today is in the low 20% uh, efficiency, which means 80% is chewed up in uh, uh, wasted heat in the engine because of the low thermal efficiency and uh, emissions. And it's a, you know, it's a shame. And so with the plasma ignition, um, there's many things that's, that's quite profound about it. And one of them is that it's not just a bigger spark. It's a completely different phenomenon but for the exact same amount of potential energy in a capacitor that would be in a typical performance ignition system, I can take the exact same capacitor with the exact same joules of potential energy there, and I can cause it to discharge in a short period of time that's way shorter than is normally thought possible, and it cranks the power through the roof, and it creates like a ball of sunshine at the spark plug. I saw the spark, and people can see it if they go on the video as well, the Murakami Plasma videos at coasttocoastam.com. It is, it, it, it's, it's an intense uh, ball of, of, of white light, uh, nothing like you would see coming off of a normal uh, a spark plug. And, um, but what's more is that you spray vaporized, uh, you, you spray a water vapor onto it, and it intensifies yeah, it gets bigger. That spark. So what's happening there? Okay, so uh, with the regular spark, that's just kind of igniting the, the, the fuel. With the plasma ignition, it is igniting the fuel, but what happens is because I can create such a high power effect from the same joules of potential energy, um, what happens is it creates a strong uh, disruptive discharge um, actually in a little bit more of an advanced way than what Tesla was even doing. Uh, with this particular method. And what happens is it creates a strong positive and negative at that gap, so strong and so fast that it instantly dissociates and pulls the hydrogen from water right out of the moisture in the air. It grabs uh, some of the hydrogen and it rips it right off of some of the hydrocarbon fuels, uh, just right on contact. And what happens is that in turn, it instantly ignites that hydrogen, and that hydrogen is what in turn ignites the rest of the fuel. And now, so normally this is achieved through electrolysis, where you, you, you put like a, a bubbler inside uh, distilled water, ideally, and you've got some sort of a, like a silver plate in there, and it, it, uh, it separates the hydrogen molecules from the oxygen molecules, right? Correct. And now, that would be you're not using electrolysis here, though. It's happening like instantaneously. Yeah, it, it happens so fast, it's almost uh, impossible to catch on a camera. Uh, is how fast it is. Yeah, typical electrolysis, you're basically running uh, electro electrical current uh, through water uh, at whatever conductivity it happens to be. 
And um, as that current is moving through, it's going to pull the, the hydrogen over to the negative plate, oxygen over to one plate. And um, a lot of people are doing this in uh, le- electrolyzers, and they'll, they may refer to them as so-called HHO boosters that they're adding on to cars to um, supplement their air-fill mixture to, to get these kind of effects. But um, with the plasma ignition, um, whether it's just the moisture in the ambient air or it's, um, you're adding you know, water vapor or the HHO, uh, this, uh, the speed of this impulse is so fast and so ferocious, it will instantly just rip it apart, ignite it right on contact, and that in turn ignites the fuel. Now, you're not actually then running the, the engine. You wouldn't be running the engine on water, would you? Um, well, see, there's two different directions you can go with this water fuel. Uh, the way most people are doing it is they're using little electrolysis cells to create a little bit of water gas through electrolysis, um, the old school method, you know, like in a high school experiment would be to separate the hydrogen and oxygen and they keep those gases separate. And then if they are going to be reburned, then they're re-added together in, in, in different proportions uh, to be reburned. But in most of the cells people are doing, uh, it's known as a commonly ducted cell. And what that means is you keep all the hydrogen and the oxygen um, products from the electrolysis all together in one area. That gets ducted into the engine um, uh, to be mixed with the air-fuel mixture in there as a supplement. And um, the other category is where people are looking to, to use 100% water, where, it's not, where the water fuel is not a supplement, but that is the whole fuel. Uh, but one clarification I would like to make is that a lot of people using these so-called HHO boosters are not really understanding where the gains are coming from. The hydrogen from those little water cells, when it's used as a supplement, is not even um, an energy source. What it is, is it, it's an igniter. It's a two-step ignition process. When somebody electrolyzes some of this water gas and they duck that to their intake to mix with their air-fuel ratio, what happens is even their normal, typical, little, weak spark can ignite that hydrogen from that water fuel. And what that hydrogen does is it has such a hot, fast uh, flame speed that it detonates and penetrates the combustion chamber and ignites the rest of the fuel more effectively. In other words, you're not burning hydrogen as fuel. It's simply an incendiary device uh, to make sure that the the, the gasoline, the vapors, uh, is all ignited efficiently. So you're getting more miles per gallon. You're using more of the fuel. So then what was Stanley Meyer and his famous dune buggy that we saw all over YouTube about running running this dune buggy across North America on a cup full of water or whatever? I mean, a little bit of hyperbole there. But So was that a hoax? Um, I don't believe it was. I wasn't there to witness it myself, but I have quite a few friends uh, who I believe are very credible that were there to witness it, and also some friends who have replicated that type of technology in different applications who also knew Meyer, uh, Stan Meyer back in the 90s, early 90s. And what he was doing, there's more misinformation on Stan Meyer on the Internet than probably any other type of so-called free energy technology. Uh, A lot of people are looking at magical ways to create all this um, crazy amounts of water gas through pulsed electrolysis circuits, um, but that's in fact not the primary key to what Meyer was doing. He All right, let me take a time out here, uh, Aaron. We'll uh, pick this up on the other side, Stanley Meyer. But we'll also continue to delve into the plasma ignition system. The inventor, Aaron Murakami, joins us right here on Coast to Coast AM. Stay with us. We will get back to our conversation with inventor Aaron Murakami in just a moment, and we'll have, we'll have to ask him, is it time to repeal the second law of thermodynamics? Back with more right here on Coast to Coast AM.
Welcome back to Coast to Coast AM. Aaron Murakami is with us, inventor of the plasma ignition system. Before the break, Aaron, we were talking about uh, the late Stanley Meyer and his his water engine, and you said that, that it wasn't a hoax, but people were not understanding correctly what he was doing. He wasn't he wasn't running his his engine on water per se. So what was going on there? Yeah, he was basically <clears throat> creating a synthetic water fuel. Um, which is basically an ammonia-based fuel uh, based on nitrogen. And um, so in his early work, see, well, in his later work, he always mentions that to um, slow down and control the rate of the water gas burn, uh, you have to add non-combustible gas to it. And it's always been uh, debatable what that was. But if you look at his early, earliest work, he completely spells it out that nitrogen is what's necessary to control the burn rate of the hydrogen. Because as anybody knows that has experimented with some of the electrolyzed water gas, if you ignite it, it has a quick, fast pop. It detonates. And when you have a fuel that detonates, it's not suitable for an engine. It's going to hit the piston. The piston is going to, going to hit that connecting rod, which is going to bang against the crankshaft, and it's just not made for that kind of engine. Um, so he wasn't looking for a detonating type of gas, which is exactly what you're going to get if all you're after is electrolyzing a lot of water gas. So what he was doing was basically utilizing nitrogen in a process where that was mixing with the water fuel to slow down the burn. See, when people are looking at water coming out of a tailpipe on a hydrogen-type engine and they're clapping at, at how wonderful it is that there's no emissions coming out of there, it's just water, well, what that water is is evidence that they just destroyed almost all the uh, potential uh, work that that, could, that hydrogen could have done. And what I mean by that is that the key to the Meyer uh, process is to prevent the formation of the water molecule. Because if you have this water gas mixed with air and you ignite that in an engine, you get the detonation. And what happens is that this hydrogen will instantly combine with the oxygen, and then it will just shrink in volume and turn back into water. Well, while it shrinks in volume, you just negated all the, ex the uh, expansive energy from that. And so you don't really get a net uh, push down on the piston because that, that, that detonation just creates water. So the nitrogen molecule sort of babysits the hydrogen molecule to keep it stable. Is that the idea? Yeah, after the hydrogen is ignited, it will attract to the nitrogen. See, because the nitrogen molecule, nitrogen makes up 78% of the atmospheric gases, and nitrogen is typically thought to have the, the, the strongest normal electron bond. Between two nitrogen atoms, there's three electrons, which is known as a triple electron bond, and it's typically thought to be, take a lot of energy, heat, and pressure to be able to crack that nitrogen to get atomic nitrogen, which is a process, you know, the Haber-Bosch process they use to create, like, industrial okay. ammonia. It's very energy-intensive. All right, um, so you've clarified this. Stanley Meyer, he wasn't running his engine on water. Uh, no. I want to get back to the, 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 the plasma ignition system. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, how are you creating this, this abnormally large and powerful spark, which is further, you know, uh, detonating the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the fuel? Right. Uh, in a more you know powerful way. I mean, how are you creating this large spark? I mean, what makes the plasma ignition system so unique? Well, um, there's a massive increase in the power of the spark, but it also looks like there's an energy gain. Um, power and energy are very different. And just to orient everybody to what the difference is, is that with power, let's say you walk over to a window and you knock on it, and you knock on it again, and you knock on it again ten times, you won't break the window. But let's say you take the energy that you dissipated in all 10 knocks and you put it into one knock, you're going to shatter the glass. And so basically in this capacitor that would normally be used um, like in a 
so-called capacitive discharge ignition system, that capacitor is discharging relatively slow uh, into the ignition coil um, at the power source because it has all these resistances that it has to fight against. You can call it impedance, there's resistance. So it slows down the time that the capacitor discharges, which means you're taking the energy and you're, you're dissipating that energy over a long period of time, so the power is very, very low. What I do is I can add one single passive electronic component, which is uh, known as a diode, a high-voltage diode. A diode is kind of like a one-way valve uh, for electricity. Uh, is a simple way to look at it. And what I do is I trick the circuit and basically make the resistance in the entire circuit disappear, is what appears to be happening, so that when the capacitor discharges, it discharges in an abnormally short period of time. So you take all that energy and you compress it into one bang in a short period of time that's normally not supposed to happen. And that's why you see this little ball of sunshine at the uh, spark plug for the exact same amount of energy. So how do you get the capacitor to empty itself so quickly? And this would be, I guess, in contravention of Lenz's law or this back EMF, right? Where, where you have, where you have magnets involved, this magnetic field, mm -hmm. you have sort of this kind of an equal and opposite, uh, counter electromotive force. Yeah. Well well, there's these go governing forces in nature and on electronics, and you can kind of call it a governor, I guess, which is what resistance is, uh, which is that electron drag. But what happens is um, I get the capacitor to jump over a gap in addition to the high-voltage output. Now, normally when people see a spark, um, it takes a certain amount of voltage to be able to jump a gap. Typically in open air, it will take about you know 3,500 to 4,500 volts uh, for the high voltage spark to jump across uh, like a one millimeter gap, uh, 35 to four, you know maybe 4,000 volts. Um, if I told somebody that I could take a 400 volt capacitor and jump over a one millimeter gap or a two millimeter gap or a one centimeter gap, they would say that would be impossible. So what I do is I get the circuit, I trick the circuit so that the high voltage jumps across the gap first, just normal a normal high voltage spark. And when it jumps the gap, it actually creates uh, conductivity at that gap because the gap is so-called ionized, which means it's very positively charged. And if something is very positively charged, that means it's seeking uh, something negatively charged to be able to balance itself and to bring it back to equilibrium. And so since it's such a strong vacuum for the electrons, it is pulling on the, on the uh, electron current coming from that capacitor across the entire circuit which means um, when the gap is ionized by the high voltage, it becomes conductive so that the capacitor of only a couple hundred volts doesn't see a gap anymore. It almost sees just a straight circuit that it, that it jumps across. And so you're mixing high voltage and low current with low voltage and high current over the same gap. How are you and, overcoming the back EMF, though, this counter-electromotive force? How well, are you the, overcoming Lenz's law? Yeah, the back EMF would be more... A, um, as a counter resistance in an electromagnetic coil, uh, there is some of that. But as far as the, the, the gap itself is concerned, is that I'm creating a negative resistance effect. And what, what I mean by that is, let's say you have a little wind tunnel, and let's say you have, um, there's no wind going through it, but you take a paper airplane and you throw it at one mile per hour, it's going to encounter the air, which, which gives like a positive resistance to that airplane, and the airplane is just going to point in a different direction is just going to kind of wind, you know, uh, turn and it's just going to, you know, go down to the ground. Now, let's say you remove the resistance and you have a, a fan at the other end of the tunnel pulling at one mile per hour, 
It has a steady breeze at one mile per hour. So if you take that paper airplane and you throw it into the wind tunnel at one mile an hour, it's no longer hitting that resistance. The resistance is gone, and so it's just steadily moving from one end of the tunnel to the other at one mile per hour. But let's say we have a, a fan at the other end sucking the air out of that tunnel at five miles per hour, and let's say you take the paper airplane and you throw it in there at one mile per hour, it's going to speed up at a negative resistance towards five miles per hour as it's going through there. And so what happens is the high voltage on one side of the gap is able to suck on the current like a vacuum cleaner at uh, a higher voltage than it's normally associated with, which means that current is actually accelerating towards that high voltage. And so no longer is the current pushing into a positive resistance. It's being sucked by that high voltage um, pulling on it at a negative resistance. And so the capacitor can discharge, but it doesn't see any resistance uh, on the whole circuit. Okay, and again, let me refer people to coasttocoastam.com, the uh, the homepage. Go to the carousel there and just wait for the slide, or you can advance the slides backwards, forwards, and look for the one that says Murakami Plasma Videos, and there they can see uh, demonstrations of the uh, plasma ignition system. Okay, so we have a sort of a a basic understanding of how you're able to uh, generate a a more powerful uh, explosive spark which then is able to burn more fuel and, and, and uh, generate more power. And with a, with a bigger spark, then you're able to burn less fuel, which means it's a leaner, it's a leaner fuel mixture, right? Absolutely. You're also, drawing, you're also drawing some of the hydrogen out of the... Uh, you're disassociating the hydrogen and oxygen molecules out of the air, uh, and that's further providing kind of it's an incendiary device, a further explosive power for the, for the gasoline fuel. Correct. Or whatever fuel you're using. So, I mean, how did you figure this out? You mentioned one little innocuous little uh, uh, piece of electronics, a diode. How did you know that if you included a diode in this circuit, you would be able to achieve all this, what amounts to a very disruptive piece of technology? Um, around in the early 2000s, I don't know, it was maybe around 2001 or something, um, uh, a good friend and partner of mine, uh, Peter Lindemann, um, at that time I, d- I didn't know him very well, uh, he came out with a book called Free Energy Secrets of Cold Electricity, which was basically his thesis on how one particular holy grail free energy technology known as the uh, Ed Gray motor uh, operated. And um, he recommended a book called um, Secrets of Cold War Technology by Jerry, uh, Jerry Vassilados, which that book was kind of used as a Rosetta Stone to kind of reverse engineer some of the concepts in the, in the Gray motor. Um, I went out to John Bedini's, and um, he recommended I get those books. And because Peter had pretty much kind of been right on about what John witnessed years ago, because John knew Ed Gray, him and one of his partners, uh, Ron Cole, went out, saw this Ed Gray motor, uh, documented it, and uh, drew, drew the, no- the lab notes down on, on how it operated. And John Bedini released these uh, his old notes from you know back in the 80s uh, online. And what was so special very quickly about the gray motor? What, did, what was it able to do? Um, the, the claim is that it was producing hundreds and hundreds of times more work than uh, what was going into it, just operating on a couple, couple of batteries. Okay. So then from that, you gleaned this information that yeah, led to the development of the plasma ignition system. Yeah, because there was one diagram uh, in John Bedini's writings where there's like a big spark gap inside of this gray tube, and on one end of it 
on the low voltage side, there was this diode that was facing in a different direction than what most people would think. Um, a lot of people commented that it's facing in the wrong direction. Well, because I didn't really have an electronics engineering background and I looked at it and understood the principle of what it was supposed to do, it, it always made complete sense to me. And so um, fast forwarding to about, I don't know, 2007 or so, some people were talking about these different um, uh, ignition technologies online where the aim was to have a water-powered car. And I started to look at these and the diagrams where um, somebody had claimed that they were running a car in water, and um, I'm seeing the, this, this diode, and nobody was really connecting the dots. And as soon as I saw it, I realized that it's basically the circuit that I proposed is a 100% mirror image of the Ed Gray circuit. It's just miniaturized. And so um, I was able to just pinpoint it right on the spot because of my understanding of, of how the diode operated in John Bedini's circuit of what, what he showed what uh, Ed Gray was doing. So it always made sense to me, but it didn't make sense to people who had a more of an electronics engineering background. Okay, so why then, uh, we, we've sort of touched on this, but let's bring it all back home. Why is the plasma ignition system that you've helped develop, uh, why is it so disruptive? It's disruptive because it basically um, greatly, it has a potential to greatly reduce the amount of fuel people are using um, in their cars. By how much? By how much? Uh, let's see, 30 to 40% increase is easy. Um, in some tests that a uh, old uh, dragster guy um, who was a master of uh, you know, V8 engines named Smokey Eunuch, he had tested this type of uh, a similar, t- uh, more antiquated version of this plasma ignition system years ago. And just for, a, for proving the concept, he had an air-fuel ratio of 100 to 1 where the, where the engine was just idling at 100 to 1. 14.7 parts air to one part fuel is considered the perfect mixture. And if you get leaner than that, the claim is that the engine's going to overheat, it's going to ping and everything else, cause damage. And that's, uh, that's a half truth. That's only true if you're trying to ignite an ultra lean mixture with a conventional spark. But all that changes when you start to ignite it with a plasma ignition because you're freeing up this hydrogen right on demand to be able to ignite a lean mixture. So Smoky Unic had it running at 100 to 1. I mean, that's many, many, many times more efficient, um, the thermal efficiency, than, than what's supposed to be believe, you know, what's supposed to be possible. And because it's burning so efficiently, you don't have the, uh, the vapors, the noxious uh, vapors, benzene and all of these other things that are added to gasoline coming out the tailpipe. So emissions are greatly reduced. Um, carbon buildup is greatly reduced. You know, a lot of maintenance on the engine is directly related to the carbon buildup uh-huh. because, you know, because uh-huh. the efficiency is so bad. It feeds the industry, you know, a typical car lot. So there goes in the built-in obsolescence. No, absolutely. Yeah, the dirtier the engine runs, the more profitable it is, the more often you have to change your oil. You know, if you never have carbon buildup, look how long the oil is going to last. Um, you know, I know people who own dealerships, and, and for the most part, um, the dealership itself, when they do repairs on an on a automobile, that basically covers the cost to run the operation, and the profits come from selling the cars. And so if you eliminate a lot of the maintenance that the dealerships have to do, then they're not going to be making profit on the cars. It it's, won't even be able to sustain itself. So they have to have something where there's, there is the integrated obsolescence, where it, it, you know, the dirtier the engine, the more profitable it's going to be. Aaron Murakami, let me pull a Ned Beatty on you from Network. You are messing with the primal order of nature, and you will repent. 
or something like that. Anyway, <laughs> it's true though. I mean, that's that's what you're up against. You are uh, you are meddling uh, with the primal order. You have you have re- you have increased fuel efficiency uh, thirty forty percent. That's a conservative estimate. Uh, you have can we say eradicated most of the emissions or you've greatly reduced the emissions? Yeah, greatly reduced emissions, increased power and increased mileage. As long as you can get around the computer sabotage in the electronic cars, if you have a carburetor car, it's easier is easier to manage because you can lean it out as much as you want. Well, that was my next question. Do you have you installed the plasma ignition system? I think you tried to show me on your car, but you couldn't circumvent the computer. So you can't make the the mixture lean enough for it to be of any use. Yeah, um, I put it on my Subaru, which has an EJ25 uh, engine, which is basically a 2.5-liter uh, opposed piston uh, boxer engine. And um, I managed to – and the reason I put it on that car is because it's no, it has an ignition system known as a wasted spark ignition where half of the cylinders are high-voltage positive, half of them are high-voltage negative. Everybody was saying it was impossible to put the plasma ignition on there because of the way the diode has to be facing for the electricity to move in, in whatever direction. And the reason I put it on my car was not necessarily because I was interested in putting it on my car, but just to prove that you can put it on a wasted spark ignition system, and I solved that problem. My primary intent is to be able to use the plasma ignition on a gas generator set for home power production. Yes, you have a jet engine out in the backyard there, you showed me. Uh, you and your uh, your colleague, Jeff Moe, fired that up for us. Correct. And um, so, well, we're coming up on a break, and we'll we'll pick this up on the other side. But you you, you, you place this plasma ignition system on the uh, the jet engine, which is running on propane. Uh, I also believe you have a you had a, a generator that you used during a power outage in yes. Spokane, and you had the, uh, the, uh, the 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 plasma ignition system on that. Well, let's start with the uh, the generator. Okay. Uh, when, when you put it on there, uh, what happened? Uh, when I put it on there, um, to, to be honest with you, I didn't have a reduction in fuel because the carburetor on there has a fixed jet. So no matter how efficient you run it, um, as long as the air is moving over that venturi, it's going to pump the same amount of fuel. However, when I had um, uh, appliances hooked to it and every time the refrigerator would hook up, or whatever. At first, I was running it with the with the regular magneto ignition system on the generator, and it kept bogging out and stalling out. And I had to go out every you know 30 minutes or something like that and, and restart the generator. And I looked at the, the plasma ignition sitting on top, realizing I wasn't even using it. Uh, I had All right. To put, put Let me jump in there, Aaron. I'm sorry for the interruption. We'll pick up this uh, discussion on the other side. We'll head into the break. With the Chambers Brothers, and this uh, time has come today. Back with more of my conversation with Aaron Murakami, the Plasma Ignition System, right here on Coast to Coast AM. Back with more of my conversation with inventor Aaron Murakami and your phone calls when Coast to Coast AM continues right after this. Aaron Murakami stays with us, inventor. And uh, Aaron, I'm getting all sorts of emails. People want to know how can I buy a plasma ignition system. I mean, is I know you have a patent on it, but is it is it commercially available? Um, it's not commercially uh, available. Most people are learning about it in the in the books and videos at ignitionsecrets.com, and then they can buy off-the-shelf parts. For example, an off-the-shelf um, capacitive discharge unit. Um, and they can just buy the diodes and, and the right kind of ignition coil, and, and but they'll have to put it together themselves. 
Um, it'd probably be recommended for somebody who ha- has at least um, you know some basic mechanical skills. They don't really have to know very much about electronics because most of the, le- the most of the complicated electronics are already in the uh, performance ignition module, so they don't even have to build that. They just get the parts, put them together as shown in the diagram, and they can either build a bench model. Um, the older the car, the easier it is to put on a car. You know, right, because you don't have to bypass the computer. Uh, and, and, and for example, with a lawnmower, from what I understand, it used to be that you could adjust the uh, the fuel mixture, so yeah. you could really lean it out, and you could put one of these. You could put, for example, your plasma ignition system on a lawnmower. But I understand now you can't even buy an, like a new lawnmower. You can, there's no valve there to adjust the fuel mixture. Correct, and they, and that's the the EPA is limiting that. Uh, just like the gas generator I have, the EPA won't let them uh, sell the generators with adjustable carburetors. Uh, the company did send me some high-altitude jets, which are um, leaner, um, but I am going to move in the direction of, of having it fully adjustable by doing some modifications and maybe using like a, like a go-kart uh, carburetor or something. Okay, um, so talk about the, the plasma ignition system that you put on your jet engine that I saw in your backyard. It's running on propane. Yeah, uh, traces of propane. Um, so basically, it's run, it, it is a propane-powered jet engine. I built a jet engine out of a uh, turbocharger off of a, a car, created the combustion chamber and a, a very efficient flame tube inside. The thrust comes out, it boils water, the water vapor in turn goes back into the intake, and uh, the plasma ignition stays on. Uh, typically in a jet engine, when the flame tube gets hot enough, you turn the igniter off and the fuel will just self-ignite from that, that heat. Uh, but I leave the plasma ignition on because any of the moisture coming in there is just going to get instantly dissociated. Uh, before I did a lot of the modifications on the jet engine um, with the fuel nozzle, uh, came off of an oil burner um, in a uh, like a regular uh, home heating system. Uh, and that's what I'm putting the propane through. And before we did a lot of the modifications, it took eight pounds per square inch just to be able to um, idle that jet engine. By the time I was done, I can turn the uh, propane down to where the needle is practically sitting on zero uh, because it's using such small amount of tr- uh, propane, we can't even measure it. And that was, uh, was that on full throttle? A um, little when bit. When it was near just, zero? A little bit. That's, that's actually turned down quite a bit. That, that, that's at the bare minimum speed. You know, if I crank it open and turn it up, it'll, it'll run so uh, fast and hot that it will, you know, make the uh, exhaust housing on that turbo glow red hot. Uh, but with the nitrogen process and moving in the direction of what Stanmeyer was doing, um, it's that, that type of chemistry is really very slow, and so you want to actually have a jet engine that runs very slow. But the efficiency of the jet is, is, is so incredible that I can put my hand about two to three feet from the thrust, and it's so cool I can just indefinitely keep my hand there. Okay, so in, uh, just to summarize, so normally uh, you're using about eight pounds per uh, eight PSI, just to, mm-hmm. just to propane. idle a propane, just to idle this jet engine. Yes. When you when you incorporate your plasma ignition system, now it's an analog meter, so we can't be too precise. But I was there, I saw it, uh, and it was it was the needle was around zero. Yes. Okay, so <laughs> that's obviously pretty disruptive. Yeah, it's a high high ninety percent, you know, reduction in the amount of fuel just to run that. Right, and how? What, what are the some of the applications for this jet engine? You could well, I mean, there, you are, could... there are uh, gas turbine generators where there is like a form of a, a jet engine, which is basically ter- um, powering a, a generator to produce electricity. Right. Um, I would really go with the regular um, gas generator sets because they're more easier to deal with. 
Um, that I was following the path of somebody who had a water-powered jet engine, uh, somebody who knew Stan Meyer, and Meyer admitted that you know uh, his fuel process was an ammonia process, and that's who I learned a jet engine from. And you know I can bring the propane down where the needle is practically sitting on zero, um, and I'm not even done with it yet. I'm not even modifying the fuel um, uh, yet. This is just with the plasma and just by recycling the exhaust back to the intake. So that now you have a, you have a patent on this, but you're open sourcing this. You want to share this with the world, right? Yeah, it is patented, but um, I give everybody permission to you know use it for personal use and to learn because I want people to be able to understand this because not only is the technology potentially disruptive um, uh, for the purposes of greatly reducing fuel, but the concepts within that circuit um, as far as being able to reduce or eliminate the resistance on an electrical circuit, those kind of things are thought to be impossible. So it's also disruptive in, in, in the sense of you know what academics are, are saying are, is possible. I'm doing it with you know a couple hundred bucks worth of off-the-shelf parts and no. Well, I was kind of joking. I was joking. Uh, you know, is it time to repeal the second law of thermodynamics? Yeah. And and you know, you have a real sort of bee in your bonnet about sort of the orthodox scientific community uh, and how we are locked into this idea of you know with a, within a closed system and how these laws of thermodynamics operate. Uh, and and you you're trying to tell everybody, listen, this is not woo-woo free energy perpetual motion stuff this is this all falls within the laws of thermodynamics yes and i would say it actually has been repealed but the academics haven't got the note yet <laughs> <laughs> they didn't get the memo right i mean see back in uh, ni- see in 1977 um ilya prigogine a russian chemist and thermodynamicist received a nobel prize for his work on open um dissipative systems or open thermodynamics and it was basically said that it extended the field of thermodynamics to include systems that can produce more than what the operator has to put in. Um, but in reality, it actually corrected thermodynamics because the second law of thermodynamics is taught actually doesn't apply to anything in the universe. There are no closed systems. All systems are open, right. but there are open systems that are not, ma- not designed to make use of environmental input, and there's open systems that are designed to make use of environmental input. I and believe so, this was the example you gave me, and I thought it was it was quite succinct and and very with the kite. The kite. Explain yeah. how the, for example, a person flying a kite really sort of illustrates what you're saying about you know there is no such thing as a closed system, and you can have more sort of output than input. Yeah, and, and the distinction is that it's not it's not really more out is going in; it's more out is there's more going out than what the operator has to put in, which implies that there has to be extra input from the environment somewhere. Uh, conventionally, it's only believed that can only happen with heat pumps, but it can happen with mechanical systems and electrical systems and other kind of systems. So, you know, let's say there's a child running out in the park and he's going to fly a kite, and let's say he um, gets the kite up in the air. He could technically, you know, if there's enough wind blowing, tie it off on a bench, walk away, and it'll continue to fly. So let's just say that this kid, you know, runs, gets the kite up into the air, and for a certain period of time, let's say he puts in one unit of energy. That's it, one unit of energy. And let's say over the, that, that period of time, wind, the wind, free wind contributes nine parts energy into flying that kite. But let's say it has a bad kite design, everything is going against this kid, and let's just say half of all the input is completely chewed up in losses. So if the kid puts in one and wind puts in one, that's a total input of 10 parts of work. If half of it got lost in uh, losses with bad kite design and friction and whatever else, that means only five units of work actually went to flying the kite. 
So the total input is 10. Five parts of intended work were done. That's a 50% efficient, which is horrible. You know, cars are 20-something percent, so that's, you know, better than a car, better than a solar panel, which are in the low 20s. But, so, that, so that's 50% efficient. However, five units of work were done, but the child only had to contribute one. That means that child just got a 500% net gain in work that he didn't have to pay for. He put in one and wound up with five units of work of flying. And that's because what he did was leverage free environmental input with his open system so that free input can come in and doesn't prevent entropy, but it delays it. So as long as the wind is coming in, that's extending the time that it takes to come to entropy, which means a lot more work can be done than what he has to pay for. So it's not more out than in, it's more out than what the operator puts in, and that's the distinction that both the skeptics and unfortunately a lot of people in the so-called free energy world um, do not under, does not understand that distinction. Uh, in other words, that's, and that's the, the entropy, that's the second law. Uh, and, and because they're closed system, uh, they don't acknowledge environmental inputs like the wind beneath the, uh, the kite. Another example from nature, you pointed out, a very simple one is just, you know, you plant a seed in the garden. Look at the right. energy that springs. Uh, you know, there's uh, an old saying, uh, um, even uh, an oak tree starts out as a nut. So right. you walk out into the yard and you plant a seed in the ground and, you know, walk away, come back 10 years later, you're going to have a tree producing nuts and, all, and, and, you know, millions and millions and millions of times more work were done than what you had to contribute. And over time, the longer that time goes on and, and, and is going to be more input from the environment, the heat, you know, from the soil, from the sun, uh, the nutrients, um, water, uh, all those contributions don't even come from you. And over time, that dwarfs your input more and more and more. So then why are they so resistant? They being, I, I don't know, the, the, uh, the people with the letters behind their name. Well, it completely violates, I think, what they, you know, they believe. You know, they're always talking about you can only get out what you put into it. And, and I do not know why the, um, these open system thermodynamics are not acknowledged in energy systems, really. Um, but if you, if you search... Open system thermodynamics or open dissipative systems actually are embraced at the upper university level in different fields of, you know, everything from sociology to economics. You know, when a, when a city, when people come together to create a community, that's like a self-organizing process that, that kind of comes together. Um, it's accepted in biology, how cells can kind of self-organize, because if you have a self-organizing principle, in a way that's, that's different things kind of coming together instead of dissipating outwards. It's a collection or a coming together, and, uh, which, is, which is just kind of a reverse entropy type process. But as soon as you start talking about open system thermodynamics or open dissipative systems in, in connection with energy systems that are not heat systems, suddenly it's a big taboo. All right, let's go to the phones. And uh, west of the Rockies, Patrick is calling from, there's your synchronicity again, Spokane, Washington. Patrick, good morning. Welcome to Coast. Patrick, are you there? We lost Patrick. All right, perhaps he'll call back. Uh, let's say hi to, uh, is it Mike in Illinois? Mike in oh, Illinois. Richard. Hi, Mike, go ahead. Hey, uh, Aaron, uh, I was wanting to ask if uh, you'd ever seen this technology that I saw on TV probably about 15, 17 years or so ago. Uh, are you familiar with how an ionic breeze works? Yes. An air purifier? 
So these guys had this spec home. It was about 2,000 square feet. And they had this big box next to the house. And they said that it was loaded with plates uh, of, of uh, varying uh, metallic material. And uh, like uh, one plate would be one material and then another material. And then the next plate would be the same as the first. You know, but uh, uh, through atmospheric pressure, the ambient air would pass between all these plates. And uh, through uh, the breaking of the covalent bonds uh, from a slight charge that ran through these plates, uh, that that they could collect that energy released from the from the uh, uh, molecules breaking apart, and that that this device collected way more energy than the house ever used, and they were selling energy back to the grid. And uh, you know, uh, I had been looking on the internet. (laughs) I've, I've scoured the internet for years now, looking for that technology, and just recently, I ran across something that said that, well, that wasn't an actual technology that had that came to fruition yet. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't find that program again. <laughs> it's like it just disappeared. <laughs> um, I have not personally heard of that. I understand the principle you're mentioning. That sounds interesting and, and actually kind of makes sense. Um, but I have never heard any, anybody utilizing that principle at a large scale to, to produce power like that. Yeah, that, that you know, that they they said that it was completely free energy once the device was built. They said that it took just a a trickle of energy to get it started, and then the energy that that it gathered uh, kept it going and also created energy basically out of thin air. You know. Yeah, well, these high voltage processes, and when you start getting into electrostatics versus um, current driven type technologies. Uh, a lot, there's a lot of electrostatic type technologies that that don't, do not always necessarily conform to you know what what conventional believers would consider to be um, basically it violates second law of thermodynamics and there are different electrostatic generators and um, I know people who have worked on different electrostatic type um, technologies um, but yeah no, nothing like what you're describing but but I do understand the principle of what you're talking about. All right, Mike, in Chatham, Illinois, thank you for that. We had a caller that dropped off, and Aaron, they wanted to know whether the plasma ignition system would work on a diesel engine as well. Um, Actually, yes. Um, This ignition is so strong that um, uh, people have run gas generators on diesel. Not on a diesel engine, but on a gas generator. They're using diesel with this plasma ignition. And this plasma ignition is actually so strong, it'll even start ethanol in sub-freezing temperatures. All right. Uh, west of the Rockies, Wayne is in Lakewood, Washington. Wayne, good morning. Welcome to Coast to Coast. And good evening, gentlemen. Uh, Aaron, uh, I was trying to do something that I guess uh, you've already done uh, 40 years ago. Um, I had a 1966 Delta 88, uh, about a t- 18, 19 yeah. foot long speak, car. Uh, maybe speak up a little bit. 3, yeah, we'll get you to speak up, okay, Wayne. Sure, I'll speak up. About um, but, 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 uh, uh, uh Ten and a half car. It had the 425 uh, high performance engine, and its standard horsepower was about 350. So normally it would only get about uh, uh, 68 miles to gallon around town, maybe 12, 14 on the freeway. And I thought that was terrible. And um, so I looked into all the different things I could do to make it perform better. Uh, the first thing I did was lubricants. I used graphite motor oil and put in uh, about a tablespoon of molybdenum disulfide. And uh, for the audience that doesn't know what that is, it uh, looks like graphite, but if you look at it under a microscope, it's like a, a super round, hard ball bearings. 
and it's ground to a very fine consistency. So in graphite motor oil, I kept it in suspension, and it lubricated up the motor real well. Then I took the quad, quad carburetor and blocked off the secondary or the main portion of the carburetor and just ran off a little two-primary uh, intake uh, up front uh, to give uh, smaller fuel. And, uh, you know, normally you would think, well, that's going to really reduce the horsepower. I'm sure it did, it did reduce the horsepower somewhat, uh, but uh, it still ran good. And then for spark ignition, I used a very high-performance uh, uh, spark uh, coil. Use soper collet wires to each spark plug, and then I used the uh, only platinum plugs that were available at the time, which I think were the Bosch single uh, injection plugs. And uh, uh, with that system, I was able to uh, get uh, greatly increased, uh, you know, um, performance uh, on its own. And then on top of that, I took it in and had a Dynatune for economy on a, a Dynatuner with a, you know. How much gas, how did you improve the gas mileage, well, Wayne, from it, six I, to eight I, miles I, in the city? I did, I, I, you know, I didn't do great tests around the city, but I ran a test like from Portland, Oregon, up to Tacoma, Washington, and back. Uh, and I filled it up to, the, you know, where it's coming out of the hole uh, to go up. When I got up to Tacoma, turning around, I did the same thing coming back. Okay, I got I got to move along, Wayne. Listen, uh, it sounds like you did a uh, an interesting little modification there. We'll uh, continue our conversation with Aaron Murakami, the plasma ignition system. We'll um, get back to our conversation with Aaron Murakami and the uh, plasma ignition system in just a moment. And your phone calls. Just a reminder that you can listen to my weekly syndicated radio program, The Conspiracy Show, live on Zoomer Radio right here in Toronto or on one of our growing list of affiliates across North America, just go to strangeplanet.ca for more or uh, more information, strangeplanet.ca, or you can download the free Conspiracy Show app and listen anytime, anywhere. Back again with Aaron Murakami in mere moments right here on Coast to Coast AM. Welcome back to Coast to Coast AM. Richard Serrett coming to you live from Coast's Toronto affiliate talk radio AM 640. Aaron Murakami, inventor on the line. And Aaron, uh, tell me about this annual conference, this uh, Energy Science and Technology Conference uh, that that uh, you organize uh, sort of in the, uh, well, I guess it's in Idaho, but it's it's very close to Spokane. Yeah, this will be uh, about my fifth uh, conference that I put together. Um, it's in Hayden, Idaho, which is about a, maybe a 50-minute drive from the Spokane Airport. And uh, every year, about 150 people fly in from all over the world to uh, listen to our presenters. Uh, we have, um, I, mean, I present there myself, but we have people like uh, John Bedini, Peter Lindemann, Eric Dollard, uh, Paul Babcock, Jim Murray, uh, William Lyon has presented there. Um, so a lot of the you know big names that people have been following for a lot of years in the so-called free energy and, and Tesla science field. Um, there's usually about maybe 12 or 13 presentations over the over the weekend. It's a three-day event, and um, people can uh, anybody can find out more information about that on energyscienceconference.com. Um, there's only about 33 seats available. Uh, we're way ahead of schedule this year. Um, when when people find out that people like you know John Bedini and and these kind of people are going to be there. Um, the registrations go pretty quick because a lot of people really want to want to talk to these people. They stay kind of low profile, but they're the ones who are, um, you know, proven over many decades because they show technologies that work. 
and um, you know that that conform to these open system concepts that are are the real free energy machines, and these are the kind of things that 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 we're able to um, show at the conference. It's pretty much the only energy conference you'll go to where you actually see these so-called overunited machines actually working. Um, yeah, I, that's a term I heard over and over again when I was in Spokane from yourself and Peter Lindemann, who I met also, and and Paul Babcock. I kept hearing this overunity. Uh, can you just give us a a, a quick uh, explanation as to what that means. Yeah, basically is a, a, a machine that's uh, producing more than what you put into it. It's another term for free energy. Uh, over unity is kind of a, kind of means more than, more than everything that you, you have within that system. So it's kind of not really a proper term, but the term has stuck so long that, that, that is understood what it, what it's, what it means. Um, you know, actually, a lot of these people, <laughs> they do not like the term overunity or free energy um, because of, of a lot of the misunderstandings behind it. But, you know, it's sure, really they carry, it carries a lot of baggage with it. Do you, do you have detractors and skeptics who come to the conference and are, are trying to maybe, I don't know, poke holes or, or catch someone? Uh, they, do, they, do they come? Um, there are some people who have a little bit of skepticism there, but surprisingly, everybody is very respectful. Uh, it's always a pretty laid-back, casual atmosphere. Uh, you know, we have everybody from the layman all the way up to uh, college professors, you know, coming in from all over the world. Most people from U.S. and Canada and and uh, about every other country I've ever heard of. Um, but no, 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 nobody has really, you know, stood up to start yelling at anybody uh, up on stage or throwing rotten apples or anything like that. And so we've been... And again, the conference is July 8th, 9th, and 10th? Yeah, July 8th, 9th, and 10th. It's the first weekend after uh, uh, the 4th of July. And uh, again, energysciencenconference.com has those details and uh, seats are running out. Uh, but the, the place where we have it is is not super big. So when we say we, we can only take 150 people, uh, we really mean it. Well, maybe you need to expand the venue. You ever thought of that? Um, we have um, one of the one of the benefits of keeping it kind of small like this is that it's more manageable, but it also gives a lot of the people flying in um, uh, a good opportunity to really spend quality time with a lot of the people that they've always wanted to meet, and to be able to um, uh, approach the speakers and, and ask questions and sit down and have a drink with them and you know see that they're you know regular laid back you know people like uh, every, everybody else. And so that all right, quality let's, time there is, you know, just as, just as important as the presentations. Right. It's all about networking as well. Absolutely. Uh, east of the Rockies, and Gregory is a trucker on the Jersey Turnpike. Gregory, you still with us? Are you still there, Greg? We lost Gregory. Uh, Wildcard line. Tom is in Lacanto, Florida. Tom, good morning. Uh, Welcome hello, to Coach. Richard. Good evening. Hi. And hello uh, to Aaron. Uh, very interesting show. Aaron, I wonder if you could give us some more details on your design. For example, um, are the diodes um, low-threshold shocky diodes, uh, and um, wh- what is the peak inverse voltage rating, and have you considered using an SCR, a silicon-controlled rectifier, to control the conduction angle? I was going to um, ask you that. Um, I have not used SCRs. Uh, these diodes are similar to uh, ham radio diodes. Um, in the pa- uh, these are about 20,000 volts, 2 amps. Seems to work pretty good. Um, these kind of diodes used to be, you know, twenty, thirty bucks a piece. Um, but shopping was that, around was that from a K2AV supplier? No, this is on eBay. I'm pretty sure they're coming out of China or something. But I've been able to get these twenty thousand volt, two amp, um, high voltage diodes for about two bucks a piece. Okay, but um, typically they're rated at thousand volts. You have to put equalizing resistors in a string, right? Um, no, I just, it's, it's all built into one, one package. I got the anode, I got the cathode, and I just hook it up in the right direction depending on the high voltage polarity. If it's positive, 
uh, high voltage output or negative high voltage output on the uh, ignition coil that will determine which direction I point the diode. But it's it's really just one one big uh, diode, uh, and I don't right. have to add anything else. Tom, okay. thank you for the call. I appreciate that. I just I don't want to get too too arcane because my head's going to explode. <laughs> Good questions, all though, Tom. Thank you for that. First time caller, Mike is. Oh no, we lost uh, the first time caller. Eric is in Fairfield, Ohio. Eric, good morning. Welcome to Coast. Hey, how you doing, Richard? Very well, thank you. Uh, long time listener. Um, I had a, a question for for Aaron about the uh, plasma ignition systems. Sure. Um, I, I heard you say something about it. It'd be better if you had older model uh, vehicles and that kind of thing. Um, I actually have a, a 79 Yamaha 1100 and an 81 Yamaha 1100. Um, and there's like four carbs for each cylinder and you can adjust uh, the the richness in the fuel and mm-hmm. or back it off or whatever on each carb i mean is that something you could actually put on a motorcycle or have you tried putting them on motorcycles um i have not tried putting it on motorcycles what i'm trying to do is get a simple uh, diagram to the common cdis that are you know pretty much a dime a dozen for bikes to see if we can utilize utilize that um uh, uh but Long story short, no, I've never used it on a motorcycle. I've been approached by many people who have who are into motorcycle racing and they want to do this. At least not with the, with um, the setup that I have. There are uh, there is another variation of the circuit that would be easier to put on a motorcycle. Uh, depends on if you have the power source to be able to charge the capacitor up. Uh, some of the ratings for the capacitors I've seen in some of these motorcycle CDIs are you know like a, a fraction of a microfarad, and it's not really enough to. Um, really give the, the the plasma effect and so if there's some way that you you can power a you know a capacitor in, in one of these um, CDI's capacitive discharge ignition module or an MSD multiple spark discharge module if there is one that you can find that you can put on your bike where it'll power the power supply for it then yes you can put it on a bike I mean it already gets great gas mileage but I'm figuring it could even do a lot better Sure, yeah, you'd be able to lean it out, and actually you can even drop the temperature, too. Right. Eric, thank you for that. Uh, your book, Aaron, Ignition Secrets, how do people get a hold of that? Yeah, Ignition Secrets is on uh, ignitionsecrets.com. Um, it's actually a package of three big uh, files that contain quite a few hours of video. There's a, um, an hour or so uh, video presentation from a conference a couple years ago in, in addition to a book. Um, and there's a whole catalog of these books and videos at e mediapress.com so Ignition Secrets is on the Ignition Water Fuel Secrets or you can go to waterfuelsecrets.com that highlights the information about the nitrogen process on on the water fuel and if anybody wants to know about the thermodynamics and really look you know anybody can understand that that kite flying analogy even you know even a child can understand it that that child just got a 500% net gain all the real free energy technologies conform to those concepts, so it's not woo, you know any magical, mystical woo-woo stuff. You know, it's it's real, and that's all highlighted in my book called The Quantum Key. And actually, about a week ago, I did a two-hour whiteboard presentation as an added kind of tutorial to kind of walk people through the concepts to make it easier for them to understand. But if you want the book to have for you know so-called free energy 101 to walk you you know from A to Z, um, my unified field model is in there. That uses mostly layman terms and elementary math and junior high school equations where almost anybody can understand the reality of what these open system thermodynamics is and how none of it violates any laws of physics whatsoever. And that's the quantum key, and that's listed on um, emediapress.com as well. 
And are are people around the country then, um, you know, because you're open sourcing this? Are they are they finding out this information, building their own ignition systems, and then installing them on whatever lawnmowers, generators, dirt bikes, and then emailing you back to tell you what kind of fuel efficiency and so forth they're getting? Yeah, a, a small percentage of people have uh, contacted me, and actually Peter Lindemann and I did put put the plasma ignition on a lawnmower, and we, we screwed the um, primary gas jet all the way in, so no fuel was coming from that, and it was running on the idle jet, and we could wrap it out to full RPM, and the temperature dropped. And um, Just by opening the, uh, or keeping the idle jet open? Yeah, it was only running on the idle jet, and then we were able to get full RPM, plus a temperature drop in the engine with the plasma ignition on a lawnmower. Um, so, so then they hide behind the EPA and say we need to remove the valve to allow people to mess with the fuel mixture. Uh, they're saying it's because of you know concerns for for air pollution and so forth. But really, I mean, is this an, a, a, in your mind a clear example of you know the suppression of this type of technology? Yeah, I think the EPA is just rubber stamping you know organization for the um, automobile and uh, you know oil industry. All right, let's go west of the Rockies. Jim is in Marysville, Washington. Jim, welcome to Coast to Coast. How are you? I got a couple of questions. Um, sure. Number one is, uh, is that uh, this propulsion system going to uh, allow us to go to the stars and the planets in a reasonable amount of time? And secondly, does uh, that uh, mean that there's free energy available to our homes right now? I'll just take my answer on the air. Um, as far as a propulsion system, I'm not working on a propulsion system. However, this type of plasma ignition system is similar to some of the um, uh, plasma thrusters used in um, uh, developed by NASA, where but it's using a consumable material. Um, but actually, this plasma ignition uh, effect is similar to some of that thruster technology. As far as a real propulsion system, take us to the stars. You know, you're dealing with. Um, Having, having to get around uh, quite a few barriers as far as inertia and that kind of thing, which actually I'd, I do address that in, in the quantum key on how to get around inertia. But um, And um, your other question as far as are there free energy technologies right now, not to get the home off the grid, most of the, most of the um, real so-called free energy technologies are more small-scale and in, in developmental stages. Uh, but completely proven. Uh, we've, we've even shown some of these at, at the conference. You know, I mean, for example, last year, um, an interesting one, you know, John Bedini showed one of his old um, machines known as a Cromray generator or a G gravity field generator. And as it's running on a battery, he hooks a light bulb up to it. And um, so when you start pulling a load from it, it actually speeded up instead of bogging down. And it started blowing cold air and it cooled down instead of heating up. You know, that's, that, that's kind of interesting. And the other, you know, motor, I mean, six, seven years ago at another conference, Bedini showed a big 14-foot diameter wheel spinning, running on three uh, 12-volt batteries for a 36-volt battery bank. And during the entire conference, it kept the battery bank on the backside fully charged up where it was recovering all the uh, electromagnetic energy, and the front battery never dropped one fraction of a volt. We really don't have a clue about electricity, do we? Conventionally, no. I do have a model of electricity in uh, the quantum key when you start looking into um, you know what a dipole is in separating the potential difference of uh, the ether um, you know for example I do believe in the ether it has never been disproven 
And um, if anybody wants to look at the reality of that and see the real history, they should really study the work of Dayton Miller, who did prove that there was an ether, and Einstein knew it. And, um, you know, so this energy, you know, if you have a light bulb hooked to a battery, that battery is not even powering that light bulb. That battery, when it's charged, is not being filled up with something. You're just separating the internal charges of the chemistry to create a, high, uh, a positive on one end and a negative on the other end. And when that battery is sitting inside of space, what it's doing is it's polarizing the ether at the location of its terminals so that the positive potential of the ether moves towards the terminal of the battery, flows over the wire, through past the light bulb, and back to ground. And what that does, since it's positively charged, that flow moving over the wire a.k.a. known as the heavy side flow, which is basically condensed polarized ether moving over the, the surface of the wire. The electrons in the wire are kicked out and they're moving in the opposite direction towards the positive terminal, and that's where the current is coming from, is the electrons in the wire, not from the battery. And so that's the basic manifestation of electricity in a so-called closed circuit. And so that source potential is coming from the ether, and when the electrolyte in the battery gets scattered or disorganized, that's why the voltage starts dropping down, not because the battery ran out of anything, but because the polarized electrolyte in the battery to create that potential difference inside of the ether is becoming equalized. Uh, east of the Rockies, Ben in Manchester, New Hampshire. You'll have to make it a quick one. Ben, you'll be our last call. Go ahead. Okay, then. Uh, thank you for being on it, and thank you very much uh, for having this particular guest. Um, we go to a lot of car shows. Uh, I'm in my late 50s and, and all that, but... Every once in a while, we come across guys like this, and it's always cool to see that. Um, I don't know how old the guest is, but he reminds me of all the young ones that are out there and the young blood coming in. And many years ago, back when uh, E85 and, and all that, that crap fuel would come out, my information usually came from Hot Rod Magazine. And they said because of the BTUs and because of the, uh, you know, the, low, the low grade, it, it really, you don't get the bang for the buck. And when when ethanol came out, we all said, well, this stuff is going to ruin everything. And sure enough, it, it did. And yesterday, we were just talking about how it is and how the EPA itself, or at least whoever's in control, is saying, gee, you know, corn is gone up and, and, and all this. And this fuel may not be, you know, the magic bullet. And, and it's been forced down everyone's throat. So... All I'm calling to say is thank you, and I hope a lot of people go to your conferences because that's how they all get lit up themselves by input and and uh, just you know there's no substitute for the internal combustion motor until we learn how to ride on a light wave a light wave uh, you know that's what's going to power my my 65 Coronet. <laughs> All right, Ben, thank you for that. A 65 Coronet. God bless you. All right, uh, Aaron, again, the details for the uh, Energy Science and Technology Conference. So it's on July 8, 9, and 10 in Hayden, Idaho. All details are at energyscienceconference.com. And uh, we're running out of seats. There are about 33 seats left out of 150. Uh, we've got about two months to go, so if you want to go, go ahead and register and submit your payment, and you'll definitely guarantee your seat, and you get to come meet all of us, see that we're you know very very real and authentic, and we're dealing with some really uh, you know some authentic technologies, and um, you're going to see that the claims being made about a lot of these things are indeed um, you know these these machines do what do what we say that they do. Aaron, thank you so much for this. Thank you, Richard. Aaron Murakami. 
For George Norrie, George Knapp, Lisa Lyons, Stephanie Smith, Tom Danheiser, Dan Galante, Sean Lattisor, Jeff Duray, G. Lee, Happy Trails, Donna Walker, welcome aboard. And here in Toronto, Nathan Smith, Scott Guest, and Jackie Lamport, I'm Richard Serrett. Thank you for your ears and your voices, your beautiful voices. So long for now. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.